The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. And we're up, Joshua, talk to me. What's happening? <laughs> What's happening is I've uh, I've wandered into some sort of a strange portal that's transported me here to this this wooden galaxy-filled, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, bunker, uh, starship. Uh, it's just a studio, but you brought with you Warmaster. You're damn right I did. Yeah, I love this stuff. How did you, so you helped develop this with this uh, company? Uh, yes, to a degree. Um, did you off, like give them like taste parameters? Uh, we were, yes. Cheers, sir. Hey, cheers, Skull. Good to see you. Mm. Woo. I told myself I was going to take a while off of drinking after this weekend. <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> Today ain't the day. Um, do you smoke basic, cigars? What's that? You yes, smoke I do. Cigars? Oh, yes, I, I do. You actually, uh, part of the development of the whiskey prior to doing a single barrel product was um, doing a lot of tasting with cigar clubs oh, by really? our original head distiller. So this part of the, the creation of this was also what would be the best bourbon to go with a cigar. Oh, this is perfect because it's got smoky, like a smoky essence to it. What, how do they do that? Do you know how they do that? I saw a video. Yes, well, what we do is we take, well, thank you. We take 75% uh, of our 75% uh, corn mash bill and we smoke it uh, in a, in a, a big uh, shipping container sure. on these racks. There you go. Now you're up. <clears throat> and then, after three days, we then take all that smoked corn, take it back to the, the distillery, and then we will mill it with um, the 25% roasted corn out of that 75% corn mash bill, and then we mill it with also a 25% malted barley, or malted rye. Damn. And we mix it all together, we get our mash going, and... Uh, then starts the process of fermentation. And the company Warbringer, had they been around for a while? Like, did you know them and then you decided to do this with them? Like, I did not the... know of them. They reached out to me. Ah, and uh, I was actually games. in the process of, uh, of trying to, to work with a, a distillery to do whiskey. Because, you know, I started to see a lot of this stuff popping up with celebrities slapping their name on these different things. And I have been someone who's a connoisseur of whiskey for a long time and I wanted to do it but I wanted to do it in a in a way that I felt was legit. Yeah, it's hard because people come with you to you with uh whiskey that they've made and they're like, "Here, I want you to try this." And you're like, "Yeah." <laughs> this is not yeah. good. Well, there is there's plenty of that. Whiskey has been a, a an incredibly fast-growing market at this point and the shelf space right now is getting pretty full up. It's also it's it's hard to make. It takes a long time to do it right. It does. Like, like Buffalo Trace ages their shit for eight years. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why it's so good. Well, and the thing is, Buffalo Trace has a rickhouse full of thousands of barrels to choose mm -hmm. from to do whatever they want with. When you're a startup, or uh, let's just say a craft distillery like us, if we have thirty barrels sitting around, we're pretty happy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just it. It, it takes a lot to get this stuff going. It takes a lot of little subtle things, which yeast you're using, you know, how long your fermentation cycle is. And then as it all goes to 
that distillation run, the low run, the low wine run, the stripping run is is important, but that's pretty much full tilt. You're not really looking for anything in particular other than just watching what the level of alcohol you're getting out of it is and what that yield is. But then on that second distillation run where the where the real juice comes from, you got to make your cuts at the right place. You want to avoid getting a bunch of heads and you don't want a bunch of tails. But you don't want no tails because some of those volatiles or higher esters will interact in the barrel in ways that come out really pleasant. Oh. But as you initially taste it, it might, you know, put a little what you feel is like some slight taint to what you're doing. But now it's all it's all process, and the thing is, you can't rush any of it. I mean, is whiskey like uh, like wine where you want to like let it sit open for a while? Does it change the flavor? It does. And in fact, I tell people, if you really like it smoky as shit, add water to it or ice. That brings the that essence of smoke. I believe it brings some of the oils up to the surface, and it makes it even smokier. If you want it less smoky, put no ice in it, no water, and then before you drink it, let it sit for five minutes, huh. and it opens up a little bit. And as you're sitting there, it will generally tend to get creamier, a little buttier, more buttery, less smoke hit in the front. It never loses all of its smoke because this is really smoky stuff, but... You know, as it sits, as it gets, to, as time gets to it and oxygen gets to it, it will change the nose and the palate. The nose and the palate. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I uh, got sitting into... here, you know, getting punched in the face all the time. <laughs> talking about noses and palates. Your nose is in remarkably good shape. <laughs> well, I mean, considering it looks like it. Mulholland Drive, it doesn't look that bad. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of guys who have way more jack noses than you. With this such is true. a long career of fighting. I will, I will let them have that. They can they can have that title, <laughs> you know. This nose is at, uh, when the when she the gal was swabbing me. Uh, I'm I'm thinking, well, try don't try to go up in this one because it's all broken up so bad you can hardly get a, a swab up that thing. Are you ever gonna get them fixed? Yeah, I think at some point. Dude, it changed my life. I got, I did it when I was 40. I had my uh, deviated septum fixed, and all I could think of was, God, why didn't I do this when I was younger? It's well, so much better. I know why I haven't, and that's just, just simply because I figure I'm just going to bust it up again. I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, even though um, you know fighting really is winding down, it ain't completely over yet with me. So I want to try and get every last drop of opportunity out of that and mm-hmm. then walk away from it because it's not a kind of thing where you're like, oh, you know, actually I feel like, no, you don't. Too late. It's gone. Right. It's over with. So How old are you now? 44. How many years do you think you got of scrapping left? Uh, I don't know. Maybe eh, two or three, but I ain't going to spend two or three probably. <laughs> it's, it's so much different for heavyweights. You know, heavyweights uh, traditionally physically matured later. Mm-hmm. Where it's like if you were a flyweight at 44, ugh. Yeah, you, you're, you, the, the fact that you've probably slowed down quite a bit is going to yeah. make a huge difference to you. Whereas a heavyweight, you, the last thing you're going to lose is power. Yeah. And lack of speed is not inherently going to um, cost you out there in the ring. George Foreman, right. big example. But yeah, even at heavyweight, example. there's not a ton of guys who are 40 right. plus that were able to relaunch their career and go out there and win a world title. George is really the only one, if you really think about He's it. He's like the number one. Yeah. But, but even Holyfield was still competitive. Yeah. Um, although not now, obviously. Um, well, that thing now when he did with Vitor was real weird. Yes. Because first of all, he took it on short notice, which is a terrible idea when you're almost 60. Exactly. You know, and I know Evander had been training and gearing up for a fight with Mike Tyson. And he, you know, he looked half decent on the mitts. But 
much better later than he did earlier. And mm. you see him early in the first few videos that he posted, it looked like he really hadn't worked out in a while and it was really knocking the dust off and getting the old engine lubed up again. And then as time went on, he started looking pretty good. But then to take a fight, an actual fight, on I think it was like two weeks notice, right? That uh, sounds about right. Um, because Vitor was supposed to fight. Who was he supposed to fight? Uh, Roy Jones, was it? That's right. So here, it, was it Roy Jones? No, I feel like it wasn't Roy Jones. Because it, it was like Vitor is still fucking fast, man, and he still hits hard. And this is TRT Vitor. Yes, this is this is a uh, really to me this is is basically youth versus age, and it was such a disparity that even the technical expertise and that that boxing experience that is far and above Vitor. Yeah. It, it didn't matter. Well, Vitor's like, always been a fairly decent boxer, yes, though. for, for sure. For, for MMA, he's been an amazing yes. boxer. And this isn't to diminish Vitor, but, no. you know. He's got to do everything. You're a Vander yeah. Holyfield. You've been to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. You've only boxed your entire career. His knowledge of the sweet science is going to be at an, an, an extreme level. Oh, that's right, Oscar De La Hoya. Oh, uh, right, is... he caught COVID, <laughs> yes, yes. He didn't just catch COVID, he caught a case of bad acting. <laughs> it, it, like, you know, that was nuts, when he was like in the hospital really quickly, all of a sudden like, oh, what Tubes are the chances coming out of, everything. of me catching COVID, like, hmm. Maybe he just has a catheter fetish. Is that what they do? They give you a catheter as soon as you get in I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was open for it. He's like, right. you know what? COVID has has made my urethra uh, swell so that I can no longer urinate. Can you to, please jam something up it? I'm trying to think if I've ever had a catheter. I think I must have since I've had a, a few surgeries. I have never other than a roll-on one for doing the Baja 1000. Oh, really? Yeah, you just basically put on like this little condom. And then you roll the, you take the line, you run it down the side of your leg, and you oh, put nice. it off to the, the back end and off to the side of your, your, your shoe, your boot. So that way, when you're driving, a little crack in the floorboard, and when you, if you pee, it just goes out the car. Oh, wow. That's genius. Because you ain't stopping. Yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> you ain't yeah. stopping. Somebody should have told that to, well, the, remember that lady, the astronaut who wore a diaper? to go oh. kill her boyfriend's uh, wife. Right, yes. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> she drove like many states across oh, state lines oh, with, like duct world. tape and pepper spray. <laughs> and this bitch was motivated. Oh. Whew. It just shows you you can be an astronaut and still be a crazy fuck. That's true. Also, um, don't fuck with crazy women. No, <laughs> but, that, get but your that's ass. the problem is they're sometimes the most fun. Uh, yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, no, it is a problem. Yeah. It's a huge problem. But you just you need to realize when you got to stop. Yeah. You got to know what's <laughs> like fun is not necessarily good for you. Yeah. You know, it, it's right. not necessarily a bad idea if you bring someone home to take like a really long, convoluted, complex route <laughs> so they can't, they can't they figure can't, out how to get back. You can't do that anymore. Those have phones. <laughs> I know. They just but drop a pin where your house I, I is. I get it. But most people are not that Machiavellian. They don't, they don't think that way ahead. Now, me, I might, I would think that way, but- you know, hey, and look, maybe if you find a girl that that's that 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 is that Machiavellian, ah, maybe you marry her. I don't know. Well, the crazy ones are the ones that are going to drop the pin. Yeah, no, for, you know? uh, generally, yeah, generally, yeah, they're going to make sure they come back. Uh, well, they're going to leave panties behind. And shit. Oh man, no, 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 crazy people in my life anymore. <laughs> I mean, MMA and pro wrestling is crazy enough, but yeah. uh, no, no, I, I decided 
that it was probably better for for my health and sanity to to be with someone that's just calm. plain awesome yeah. and calm and and is is not interested in dropping pins and doing crazy Your shit. Your girlfriend or, seems very nice. She it is like you've got a perfect awesome. I I couldn't be happier. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. So how many times have you done the Baja? Just once. Bud Brutzman oh, hits me up. Oh, my buddy Bud. I oh, love yeah. Bud. So Bud hits me up on short notice, and he's just like, hey, what are you doing? Like, uh, actually, I was at 10th Planet in uh, downtown working with uh, Amir, um, I think it was. Ren Amir Alam. No, Alam. Oh, oh Amir Alam. And because um, uh, for a while there, all the bigger guys from Eddie's school were training a lot with me, and I was cornering them on a lot of the things they were doing. Mm. So uh, I'm sitting there. And I get this call from Bud, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just training. He's like, you want to do the Baja? I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> By the way, I've never done any off-road racing, only only like road racing and drag racing. And so I'm like, but I know that this is a completely different animal. But yeah, sure, why not? When? Oh, Thursday. It's <laughs> Monday. That's such a Bud Where do I got to be? You know? <laughs> and uh, it turned into a fucking adventure and a half uh explain the baja for people that don't know what, right. what's involved because it's a crazy race they're in the baja peninsula there is the baja 500 and 1000 and the 1000 being the granddaddy of mall it's one of the most uh prestigious off-road races in the world it's also one of the most dangerous and they have two ways of doing it one is they do a circle where they set it up where you start off uh, in ensenada uh, generally, and then you'll you'll head down south and you'll make a loop and you'll come on back. And then the other aspect they have is it just goes in a meandering line all the way down to a thousand miles from where you started. So for the time I did it, I was part of a team, and uh, I think I jumped in the car second or third. Me and uh, and uh, Jesse Combs, rest in peace. So we ours went from Ensenada to. Uh, I believe La Paz is one, you know, off-road shot all the way down there. And basically, you're off in the wilderness, in the wilds. I mean, there are – you can see the remnants of courses and things like that, but some of the stuff just gets made as it goes. And uh, there's also a lot of people that do what's called pre-running. So they'll go out there and they'll, they'll map out the track and all that, and they will mark all the – hazards and they'll get used to it because you know there's a lot on the line with the Baja 1000 and you have if you've got the money especially you'll have a trail team that'll travel down the highways and then can intersect with you at different points to do your driver changeover is it a thousand kilometers like what is it i think it's a thousand miles it's a thousand miles and uh wow. um you you get out there and you're in the middle of nothing and you could be i remember we jump in the car at four o'clock in the morning Pitch black, lights are on, slap you on the helmet, put your shit on, bye. And we're already going 50, 60 miles an hour in the middle of nowhere in brush. And I'm looking at a GPS and looking up ahead. There's no windshields in any of this stuff because that would just get dirty and then you'd get blind. So you wear your helmets and you sit on microfiber like mitts and things to just clear your face off as bushes, cacti, whatever, dust, dirt, silt is flying through that into the cabin and hitting you. Uh, you've got electrolyte drinks that are in a in a little uh, uh, like a camel setup that you can go and you know take a drink while you're need that while you're in the car. You've got your catheter set up to to, to urinate. 
uh, and away you go. And it's pitch black. All you can see is what the lights are showing. And I'm just going, well, you know what? Tight butthole, I guess. But there ain't no turning back now. <laughs> and uh, and we were in a class six vehicle, which was it was like a doom buggy with um, a Subaru Boxster motor in it. But the thing did top out at like 98 miles an hour on a wow. back road, just going straight, just hauling ass, four gears. And it's it's pretty hairy. I mean, when you when the sun starts coming up, though, and you're, on, you're going 30 miles an hour along the side of this rock ridge on this cliff with like a 40-foot drop off to your right, but you're seeing the sunset coming up, the sunrise over the, over the Mexican uh, skyline, and it is just insane. But also... People like to do things like create hazards on purpose and then film them for YouTube. So put a jump where one wasn't, put a yeah. hole where one wasn't, uh, put a cactus right in the middle of the course, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy shit. Yeah, that's and, what I and kept And stuff like about. this happens. Uh, I can tell you from experience, I've, uh, I rolled our, our vehicle over. Not that bad, thankfully. Someone came by. Pulled us over, away we went. Really? Yeah, we just blew all the oil out that had spilled, uh, you know, in, in through the exhaust and just ran it, smoke, boom, bye. Wow. Uh, away we went. And they then, call those trophy trucks? Is now, that the trophy called? trucks, wow, you hear oh them God, before you ever a... see them. And those dudes are going 150 miles an hour. hundred I don't know how fast they get, but, you know, they're all like 10,000 RPM small blocks and shit just freaking flying. And... You will hear them from, you can hear their engine, and then as they start coming up behind you, they start hitting these sirens and stuff to tell you to get the hell out of the way. And if you don't, they will come up, run up to, right behind you, and then bump you right out of the way. Jesus Just shove Christ. you right off the road and keep going. But you watch them hit these whoop-de-whoops, and the suspension's just going, where we're, all, we're doing this kind of thing. Right, we got to go over them, let up, get on, let up, get on as we're going, and we're going on. And the trophy trucks just run like right over the top of them, like they were nothing there. <sighs> and uh, is that a trophy truck? Yes. Wow, look at BJ that Baldwin, uh, another dude who loves shooting like we do, but is an I insane I trophy truck uh, uh, racer. Yeah, yeah, he's badass. Those those trucks look insane. They like, are absolutely. Those nuts. are stupid expensive too. And they're, they're too, automatics right? too. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. So is yours a manual that you were Ours driving? Ours is a manual with a four-speed Volkswagen uh, four, four in reverse. Uh, four in reverse? Four in a reverse. That oh, was and it. a reverse. Yeah. I was like, why would you need four gears in reverse? Yeah, yeah. Although our reverse died on us at some point. Did I don't it? know why. Yeah. It decided like. Well, I'm sure the beating <laughs> of just the pounding and like, the, they, they, they can't last. Uh, no. And funny enough, the most durable vehicle to, uh, that I've been told the ones that, that that make it through the most are stock bug. Stock Volkswagen? Volkswagen bug. Really? Yes. So there's a limited amount of things you can do to it, but they just soldier on and get through it. But I hear it, it is just brutal on the body. Yeah, I mean, I could only imagine that those are tiny, light vehicles. They make it. Maybe that's it, right? Yeah, it could be. You know, I, I think weight. that by being lighter, you're obviously going to um, have less impact amongst travel because it's going to have less kinetic energy, yeah. got less weight bearing down on things and releasing and bearing down on it again. But to the life of me, maybe they're just really well made. <laughs> Bud does that every year. Yes, he does. He's and, so and he, fucking his nuts. team won the class that we were in that year. Him and uh, uh, Kyle. Um, 
uh, oh, what's Kyle's last name? He used to uh, run Detroit Speed, an absolute uh, gem of a man. You know when you meet that person, you're like, wow, you are probably like the most pious person in the whole world. That's Kyle. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's just such a nice dude. Just so cool. And uh, <laughs> I met him through Bud, again, doing Optima uh, Ultimate Streetcar Invitational when I competed over there um, at SEMA. So. Yeah, Bud is this a successful television producer with a beautiful wife and mm -hmm. family and risks his fucking life every year for a goof. Yeah. I'm like, why are you doing that? He is just driven to go out there and just compete. The guy is just such a competitor at everything. And he's such a, a seriously intense person when it comes to competing. And he, he still trains jujitsu yeah. and everything. And, no, he does that with his whole life. He's yeah. like that. And, he's uh, a strange guy. <laughs> well, he, he is, but in, in like uh, the best way. You yeah. know? Um, no, I love him to death. He's, he's an absolute fantastic dude. I sold him his Bud. house. You did? Yeah, that was my old house. Oh, man. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, he told, well, I, I told him that I, you know, he was looking for a house, and I said, hey, I'm moving out of this house. Do you want to buy it? And it was perfect, so we didn't have to go through anybody. Well, you know, we I had to have to plenty of car stuff for, for everything you might need. Back then, man, I was kind of broke. I didn't, uh, I didn't, well, I wasn't broke, but I didn't have a lot of cars. I only had a, I only had a couple cars back you then. You didn't have that, that sick... Was it C two C two Corvette? Oh yeah, no, I didn't. Because I saw that, that one yeah. up at uh, Home Dudes uh, shop. Yes, um, in Strope. the valley. Strope. Steve Strope. Steve yeah. Strope. Yeah. Don't get him talking about Star Wars. He'll, he'll <laughs> never get Wars Oh, nerd? he's a massive Star Wars fan. Like he'll, <laughs> he'll be like, and then Jibber Jabber. I can't believe he was just left out of the canon. I'm like, okay. What? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, he's like into it, man. He's deep. Bud wears only black. Only black. For people, like, you go over his house, you open up his closet, it's like a crazy person. Like, Woody, where's your colors? None. You no colors? Zip. He's just serious. He's Nothing like but black. Cash. Johnny Cash, right. His cars are black, too. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's got a beautiful 69 Mustang. Have you yes, seen he that? does. That one it has a 4.6 dual overhead cam motor in it, too, mm. I think. It's a gorgeous car. He's got a lot of good cars. He was uh, the producer of Rides, that show where I had my Barracuda done. Ah, right, right, yeah. right, right. He also right. produced Overhauling, and I had my buddy on Overhauling. That Bud, uh, I wrote out to him, and I go, "Hey, my my buddy's got the '67 uh, Firebird, and he's a comic artist, Dan Panosian, amazing dude, great guy, and he would love to get this thing. Really, I mean, it drives and everything, but it, he would really, really love to get it all done up." And so, of course, you know, this whole elaborate scheme gets put together. Right. It's overhauling. For people who don't know the show, they pretend to steal your car. Mm -hmm. So someone will steal your car. So like, say, say if Josh had a charger, they would steal his charger, and then they would do it all up, and then bring you somewhere under false pretenses, and then unveil your new car. Well, in this case, they didn't do any of the stealing. No thievery. Uh, but the deception was, oh, hey, uh, Dan, they... The UFC, the magazine, is going to do this photo shoot on me, and they would love it if I could bring like a muscle car or something. So could could we use your your Firebird? He's like, yeah, uh, that's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, they'll give you like five hundred bucks for the for the time and other these those. Sounds great, amazing. And so I'm standing there with uh, it's me and Ariani, and at this moment, Bud or whoever is directing the photo shoot. He just goes, all right, and action. And Ariani throws like a whole bucket of red paint all over the car. And then I swing a sledgehammer through the front windshield. What? <laughs> In front of the dude? In front of the dude. Oh, my God. And the whole, obviously, the idea was, oh, we're going to get this great TV moment where this guy just like melts. Right. In one way or the other. And instead, he just kind of goes, hmm. 
He kind of laughs. And, and so we bring him over and, but, and, and Bud's saying like, well, no, I mean, you got paid. I mean, it, it, the contract's not going to take care of this or whatever. But the whole time we're trying to get this rise out of him and he, he doesn't really budge. <laughs> and okay. Then we, we let him on that, you know, it's overhauling and all this. Did and, you tell him before they fixed the car? Oh yes, uh, and uh, did he have to fake it when you unveiled it? Uh, no, no, he knew, but he didn't get to see anything we were doing. So he knew we took his car. He knew a bunch of stuff was going to be done, but he had no idea. Uh, it was just like your car is gone. It's got a sledgehammer through the windshield and a bunch of red paint on it. And bye, you'll see it when we're done. And we're not telling you shit. And but at the time, he so Bud's just like, dude, wh- how, why are you so cool about this? And essentially, Dan's just like, well. I really trust Josh, so I knew he would, it would. He would. There's no way he would let my car just be fucked. And I'm like, God damn it! <laughs> we needed, we needed to a, be. Yeah. <laughs> Look at him. He's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Wow, what a beautiful car. And uh, I came. I worked on this a little bit with them. I did some of the deconstruction. I I helped oh Lucky God. with a little bit of the electrical. I worked with. Um, uh, Andreas a little bit on some of the other touches and me and Chip sat down to do just the, like the rough outlining and designing about what kind of a car in so terms this, of purpose we wanted to build out of it. Yeah. And this dude had no idea. No, no clue. And, wow. uh, you know, we're in there just working away, getting it done. And Lingenfelter supplied this sick um uh, LS3 that makes like 600 horsepower. Detroit Speed did a whole deal for the front and back suspension. Wow. Center Force is helping us with the clutch, and uh, it, it, the car turned out to be incredible. It's like one of the, I think, until his son was born, and maybe even a little while after, his his wallpaper on his phone was his fucking car. So <laughs> that's how much he loves it. Does he still drive it? Oh yeah, and I make yeah. him take it out when I can too. Or uh, we'll do stuff like. Um, uh, there's this quarantine cruise thing that's still going on down in uh, that, that got started during the quarantine, but it's, it's still going on. This cruising around Pacific Coast Highway and all that kind of stuff. And so I brought my GT500 out, and I made him come out with the with his car Mitra. And uh, yeah, you see, here's the thing: if you ain't driving the cars, what's the fucking point? Oh yeah, no, I, that, I firmly believe that. I don't. I don't understand. People who have cars and they just—it's just like going to be in a garage forever. Oh, no, there's no point. I, that just, a lot of people do that. I, I know, and I understand if you want to build something museum quality, but then I'm like, well, then just put it in a museum. Why the yeah. what the what's the fucking point? Yeah. But uh, but the, in in terms of what's the fucking point at SEMA this year, there's always some trend that is trash, in my opinion. That always seems like. It, maybe it got started in an interesting way, and then it just like runs the gamut of just like, every copycat version of it. That's just like, oh god, we don't need any more of this. This year or last year, I guess it was turning your classic car electric, and I'm like, fuck. Whoa. I have I, a problem with that. I have a massive problem with that. I'm just like, why would you take the soul and spirit out of a machine? And replace it, make it even more material, more mechanical, yeah. and less engaging. Yeah. Like, and then it's so bad now that even with uh, EVs for all kinds of aspects, there's people selling you. I don't know how they how they put it together, but it, it's a thing that makes car noises oh, for you. No. <laughs> no. 
No, no, no. But that's like how far. Vroom, vroom. Yes, this is. Does it pretend is, to shift gears? Because there's no gears. I, 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 mean, look, I think man. a Porsche Taycan has two gears mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But a Tesla has zero. It's like one gear. So what do you, what do they do? Does it just rumble I, when you hit the gas? I, I no, guess. no shifting. I, I, dude, I, I have no idea. What do they this do with is, their this, fake noises. Uh, I I guess they just add that to the rest of other fake shit that they're doing in their life and the way that they're doing things and and uh, you know hunky dory. You know, BMW started doing that back in the day with uh, their turbocharged engines. They started putting like uh, pumping in fake exhaust note through your stereo. <laughs> yeah, and I, it was an option, I believe. I believe you could shut it off. But um, I had a couple of M3s. Back in the day, I had the older ones though with the V8. Oh, yes. And it was it was really nice. It was like a high revving great V8 car. engine. Oh, it was great. Great car. Yeah, I, it was so good. I got two of them in a row. My lease went up, and I got another one because I loved it. It was just a real high rev. It wasn't the fastest or the most handling, but it was very engaging. It's a, it's a it's a car that has a driving experience to it. It's quick. It's fast revving. Um, but it's also easy to drive everywhere you want to go. It was a great commuter car. Yeah. I loved it. I loved taking it to the comedy store. It's just a great shifting paddles, you know, which I generally don't like. But when you're in L.A. traffic, that's one of the things I always admired mm. about you. In L.A. traffic, <laughs> you still drove a stick shift. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I actually sold my, my SRT8 Challenger and replaced it with a diesel GL, GLK Mercedes SUV, and I was so proud when I put a trailer hitch on it. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I've turned a fucking new leaf. When I'm like, hey, look, it's a diesel, and I've got a trailer hitch. Yeah, that's a new leaf. <laughs> you know, but at you- the same time, I'm still like with Victor Henry, who you just saw in UFC. We're building. Uh, he bought uh, a '70 Cutlass S off of me, and we're building this thing up. Um, Fitech is giving us fuel injection to do on the whole car. I'm, I've had a, a 455. With aluminum heads, roller cam that I had sitting around, put in it, tunnel ram. Uh, it'll be like 10, 10.2 to, to 1 compression. It's going to be, you know, He talked about that. We, t- we actually talked about that during the fight itself. Ah, yeah. Which, by the way, was fantastic. And I really wanted to talk about that because Victor Henry was super impressive. It's so rare that you see a guy enter the UFC, um, you know, Kind of unheralded, but like with a good reputation, mm-hmm. but you know, not a lot of hype behind him. But performed that way against a guy like Howney Barcelos, yes, who's a top of the line fighter. I yes, mean, he is so good. Howney is so technical and so high level, and Victor just put on a fucking clinic. He put on a clinic. It was amazing. Uh, He's so good, and man. it's like Victor said to the press afterwards. Where, you know, they, they usually ask a bunch of like just rote questions and like, well, you know, what, what did you think about uh, being underestimated or whatever? And he goes, look, you guys are UFC people. You know about mm. UFC, you know about people in UFC, and you don't really know anything else. Right. And so sure. what you don't know about, I'm not surprised that you're not acquainted, like that you wouldn't really understand how to, how to, how to put this on some sort of metric right that is a very good point because i think at this point in time that's silly it used to be you would look at the ufc and that was like the nfl those Mm -hmm. the elite football players the ufc was the elite fighters but there are guys in other organizations now that are top of the line 
There's a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of them that are fighting for one FC. There's a bunch of them that are fighting for these other organizations. You know, Kayla Harrison mm -hmm. who's over in the PFL. There's top of the line fighters. There are killers, are killers all over the world. And that was, you know, one of the things that I like to do with my athletes is I want them to see the world. I want mm. them to fight all over the place. And so I've, I was taking Victor to Russia, and he's over there beating guys. Uh, he was undefeated in Ryzen. He was the champion for deep. He had fought for the title in Pancras before early in his career. Mm. And so he'd gotten to see all this different stuff and fight in all these different places, different rule sets. And so when it came time for the UFC and during the pandemic, it's just, okay, can't get to Japan. No one's getting visas. Uh, fighting in the States is really limited. But um, uh, the amazing uh, George and Steve Bash, they – Took help Victor out, got him a title shot against uh, uh, Albert Morales and LXF, and so we were able to keep him busy. And it's like, hey guys, and I'd been talking to the UFC, but I'd I'd get the response like, well, you know, Dana White's contender series. I'm like, no, this kid's 20, 20 and five, twenty one and five. He's got two world titles. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm right, not putting right. him in the contender series for a maybe. This right. kid's legit, and eventually. This opportunity with Howney came up, and we just said, yeah, yeah we're, we're good to go. That's a good example because most people are not going to take that fight with Barcelos on such a short notice because right. he requires a lot of preparation. He's this is true. Crazy endurance, super skillful, but God damn, I was impressed with Victor. I was impressed with how composed he was mm -hmm. and how technical. He never wound up once. Yeah. Everything is coming from the chamber. There's no telegraph. He's constantly moving. He's constantly fainting. Lots of head movement. Fuck, he was, a, he well, was impressive. It was it was us putting our game plan fully uh, into into implement into implementation because Howney is such a tough guy, very physical athlete, great wrestling background as well, mm -hmm. um, and a, a diehard heavy striker. So our thing is, well, you know, all right, we're not going to wrestle with him. Like, there's no point. I'm, I, I don't I don't feel that Victor couldn't or couldn't submit him potentially but why why put it in places where we feel like not be giving something up or putting it in a, in, a, in a place that he wants to be but we also know he loves fighting on the feet more than anything else for the most part and he really believes in his striking skills so you could get into a big fight with him about that but now you're kind of putting yourself in the position to kill or be killed and and why so the idea was keep tearing apart at his body Keep him fighting on the back foot. Um, don't let him fight moving forward. And const use constant fakes, uh, feints. Uh, keep tagging the body over and over and over again. Getting our chip shots in. Hitting first and always hitting last. And watching out for his, his right uppercut, his, um, his right hand, and how he loves to pull with his head movement and then throw a punch behind it. Mm. And so not getting too extended, letting that guy get his work off at times, but but pulling with a half step, getting right out of range so that we're not behind or right running into any of that stuff and continue to chip away at that body and take away his endurance and bank on our cardio and scoring and scoring and scoring. And if the opportunity presents itself, we had a few things in our up our sleeves for potential fight enders, but also we knew that if you keep pulling a guy apart, Eventually, they're gonna start. If they feel like they're losing in any way, they're gonna get bigger mm -hmm. and bigger and bigger. And the bigger they get, the more openings they're gonna leave behind. Right. And there was a couple times um, it seemed like you know Vic had him rocked. Maybe he could have taken him out, but you know Howney's so tough. So we're not gonna just 
blindly run into anything. And so Vic just kept pouring it on, pouring it on, pouring it on, pouring it on. And, you know, in time, we just were able to pull Howney's tactics apart and and leave him exposed to our our opportunities. But, you know, the guy never stopped fighting the whole fight. You know, even in the third round, whenever he got a chance to get off, he was trying to take Vic's head off, which yeah. is why he's so dangerous. It was very impressive in that he, he had that kind of endurance, given that it was such a short notice. Did he have a, a fight lined up anywhere else, or was he just no, always in the gym? but as soon as that fight in LXF was over with, um, I just said, hey, stay in the gym. You're not going to crank it up to uh, full, full peaking fight camp, but you need to stay in the gym and stay at a certain level of conditioning. Keep a strong base. Because I'm going to try and find something for you. I'm going to be out there advocating to try and get you another fight. And if it ain't in the UFC, then maybe it's going to be again for, for George and Bash in LXF. I mean, we're going to keep you busy. We're going to make it so nobody can deny you at some point. And he's in this place where, is he 34, 35? 30, I think he's 34, going to be 35. So at that age, especially in the lighter weight classes, as we were saying before, mm -hmm. that he's in a a position where you got to kind of get going now. Exactly. And I knew that he had a lot left in him and potentially he was actually coming into his his best era of himself right now. And so I didn't want to let that go to waste. What well, certainly looked like in the fight. I mean, I, there's I, no way you could fight like that against a guy like Parcells. At the end of the day, Sean <clears throat> Shelby sees us in the back and he just had such a shit-eating grin. He's like, "Fuck yeah. That is exactly <laughs> what we want." Yeah. And I'm like, I, I told you, but I know everyone's always telling you, but, you know, he's the real deal. And he's going to give you badass fights every single time. This kid is doesn't know what it's like to not have heart or will. It just doesn't exist. And he's skilled and mean, and he can get it done. He's great. And I was really actually massively surprised in a pleasant way about the what the UFC was doing for him in prep for this fight. It's like, oh, you have this fight camp coming up? Oh, we have meal plans. We got this. We will make sure you make weight. We'll help you. It's like, all right. I love this. Mm. You know, uh, looking after this kid in this way where you're not going to get that any other place. And not right. to not to diminish places like Ryzen or fighting in uh, the places like um, uh, uh, RCC in Russia. I mean, we've been taken care of greatly everywhere we've gone. But that having the UFC go into their 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 toolbox of things that they could they mm -hmm. could they could put out there to benefit the fighters I was stoked yeah was no they've done a lot of amazing stuff in that regard like first of all uh, establishing the performance institute in yes Vegas. that was a huge help been? too yes it's yeah, amazing yeah. I was there with Travis Brown when he was gonna f prior to his fight with Alexi Olenek and then when we were there to originally fight at the Apex Center, you know, that was completely opened up to us. And, and that was a great, great opportunity. I've been in conversation with Forrest because I'm always interested to learn about why the, the PI itself does this versus that. Right. Even uh, I was talking to the people there about their Normatec system. OK, well, what, what is your experiences with this? You know, how is this? Uh, compared to was it ECG or ECGC, which is another. We should explain Normatech. Normatech well, is uh, these they're these awesome sleeves. boots yeah. that you put on. They, well, they're like pants. They go and they've got ones leg. for your arms too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then um, to me, it kind of reminded me of the ECGC, I think it's called, where there's a system around heart patients 
where they put cuffs around you and they hook you up to an EKG. And then it, with your heart rate and your pulse rate, it's supposed to move and squeeze in, in succession to create uh, uh, extra circulation or help with circulation. And so there's been studies that say there's a lot of benefits for this for people that have had heart issues or um, uh, circulation-related stuff and whatever. And so I started talking to the gal there about how does this compare. And so getting little bits of information like that, getting to understand more about what the systems are and what their intention is, what problems are they trying to solve, that's great for me as a trainer because then I can take that information back and then figure out how to use it with my athletes, find other complementary things to go with it, you know, anything you can do to try and give that athlete that – not just that extra edge now, but something that can keep them in the battle even further along in their career, which is you yeah. know, even though I'm a heavyweight and we can get away with having longer careers to a degree, I feel that the way I was trained from the beginning had a lot has a lot to do with me being able to stay in this game as long as I have. Well, particularly conditioning, right? I mean, well, conditioning, yeah. Like, and tell everybody like your your background with catch wrestling. You were very fortunate to be able to train with some real legends. Yes. Uh, so my initial training, uh, well, I was a wrestler, and I was I saw UFC two on a tape sophomore year of high school. And I just looked at it and went, I don't know how the fuck you get into this, but I'm gonna find a way somehow, and I'm gonna do this. It was just like that. There's no questioning. There was no hemming and hawing, no if and ands. I'll do it. Back in 1994, five, six, I mean, it's all just like do it as you can. Yeah. Right? Put it all together in any way that's possible. I saw your first fight, one of your first fights on VHS tape. So you give it to me. <laughs> Babyface Assassin. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it was back in the day, man. It was a long time ago. And through then, I trained with Jim Harrison, uh, rest in peace, uh, one of the old school blood and guts bare knuckle karate guys, mm. you know, the kind of guy where even Chuck Norris and all them are like, that's a dude you don't fuck with. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it was being at his celebration of life uh, last year because he died during COVID and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't really put together like a proper goodbye. And it was like me and Superfoot and Troy Dorsey and, wow. you know, a legends, uh, a bunch of different legends. But then listening to like guys that weren't martial artists even talking about, but people from law enforcement when he did this special he was a part of the special criminal unit in East St. Louis. Oh boy. <laughs> and hearing the stories about direct from these guys in his mouth about being there with him or people in the military it's like yeah well when Jim Harrison you know was paid to do some work in military action and go over and different things and talking about him in that regard and you're just like this guy is something that doesn't exist anymore. This is like Ernst Jünger type stuff. Mm. And uh, you know, he just, even I, who trained under him and knew him very well, just was sitting there. Just I still had to sit back like, wow, what, what an individual. But those guys in the early days of karate, too, I mean, that was a wild time. Very wild. When, you know, in like the 60s and the 70s when karate was being introduced. It's then... a lot like MMA, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, they're very building it so. as they go. Yep, very Building it so. as they go. And yeah. uh, when I tell people, you know, nowadays that... At one point, we just, oh, we'd agree on rules as we got there. Or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this place would allow headbutts and bare knuckles and whatever. And people are like, what the hell? I go, this, we were just fighting. You know, we were trying to test it all out. And yeah. the idea even of gloves was foreign to us because they didn't really exist. 
right? We had to, if you wanted MMA gloves at one point, you basically had to buy Harbinger wrist wrap bag gloves that were mm-hmm. fingerless, and then you would have to trim pieces off and build them. That's what was available to you. And then there was the Boxygenics glove came out. That was in the UFC. And then after that, you know, different people started making gloves. And then gloves kind of became a standard. But at one point, it was like, yeah, they exist, but you ain't got to wear them. Well, wasn't the first MMA glove really the, those things that Bruce Lee was the wearing? The Jeet Kune Do ones? Yes. That was that Enter the Dragon? Enter the Dragon, yeah. where he does a whole scene with uh, Samo Hung. Yeah. And takes him down and arm bars him. Gets him in an arm bar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that was during the days when he was working with Gene LaBelle. Well, even prior to that, my uh, the guy who really got me into martial arts to begin with was Fred Sato, who was one of the founders of the Seattle Judo Dojo and one of the original four. Uh, that is Bruce Lee, Fred Sato, uh, Taki Kimura, and uh, Jesse Glover. That's wow. the original four. And I remember... You know, looking through little old old books, picture books, and stuff of you know Fred Sato and Jesse and all them with Bruce, and they're just in someone's backyard. I don't even remember whose backyard it was when Bruce Lee is a little skinny kid going to Garfield High School in Seattle. Yeah. So FYI, people, if you watch Dragon the Bruce Lee story, mostly bullshit revisionist history. Yeah. Like a lot of things these days. No, he didn't go to UCLA. To my understanding, no, he didn't meet Linda Lee in California. They're no? all from Washington. They made all that up? It's all made up. Why would they do that? Because it's cooler to be from California than not. it is to be from Seattle, but I guess. But it's not. It's a historical figure. Yeah. He's Leon like... is not. There was no Leon. It was Jesse Glover. So Leon's a fake guy? Fake guy. He's supposed why? to be Jesse Glover, so to speak. Why wouldn't they just have Jesse Glover? I, I just don't understand why they do that. You know, it's like in the Mark Schultz uh, film uh-huh. when they had him fight a Russian guy at uh-huh. the end. When everybody knows he fought Big Daddy Goodrich, it's a part of history. I, I know you can go look it up. It's yeah. it, it's the same with all the stuff about Bruce. You could even uh, Taki Kimura put out a book, uh, something uh, Memories of the Dragon, whatever. It's got all the old pictures in it. Yeah, you no, know, Jesse Glover has passed away. Taki's passed away. Um, Fred, uh, my Fucking sensei, Hollywood. passed away. But but you know I. I remember watching that movie and sitting there just being just fuming about like, why the fuck are they lying? You know, yeah. I mean, what's the point? I There's mean, the no guy's point. The guy's story is cool enough. And yes, at some point he ends up in L.A. and everything. And and, you know, the contributions to the idea of approaching martial arts from his perspective absolutely or live live on in all kinds of aspects, yes. in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of people. Yeah. But, you know, I mean. I trained with Guru Dan before. I, I, I've been around all of these folks, and it's just like, I don't, his story's cool enough. Yeah, but that's something that Hollywood producers love to do. They love to think they're smarter than the original story. Yeah. Instead of just taking the original story and putting it together in an entertaining way, in their eyes, you have to add some nonsense to it. Otherwise, they don't feel like they got their fingerprints all over it. Yeah, I could see that. Like, a lot could be from just simply ego. Like, I want to tell the story the way I want to tell it. It doesn't matter what reality was. They do that all the time. Of course they do. But then what do they even make these days? Anything that is not, that is original, good luck finding that. It's as if, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just like... What? Well, I'm sure they're making original movies. Well, uh, I'm sure, but I would say. But the point is, it's like, why would you change the, the life story? Of a historical figure who's one of the most important figures in the history of martial arts. Right. I, I don't know. It, it, so there dumb. has to be, 
some sort of reason, and it could be arbitrary on one end, and it could be deliberate on another. At the end of the day, for me, it's just like a lot of things. Go to the source. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it may not be the most popular widespread one, but it's out there. It's just, it's, it's just so annoying. So how did you get into Catch? Uh, I got into Catch basically through Matt Hume, who yeah. was training who had trained over in Japan with Funaki and Suzuki and then got to train with Sayama. And so he's training under these guys that all come from this Carl Gotch catch lineage mm -hmm. who also are from Antonio Inoki. Mm -hmm. So back in the 70s, Inoki, he split off from oh, the Japan Wrestling uh, Association or something like that. So him and Giant Baba, they make a split. They both are trained under Ricky Dozan. And... Baba goes, he makes all Japan pro wrestling. And Inoki goes, he makes new Japan pro wrestling. And Inoki's approach is, we're going to make this the world's strongest martial art. That's our goal. This is when we present professional wrestling, it's going to be something called strong style. And it's going to be the king of sports. It's going to stand at the zenith of all things. And it's going to be incorporated with martial arts and fight skills and all these, all these aspects of reality combat. And he brings in Carl Gotch to mm. come and run this gym. And so all these guys are all getting trained by Carl Gotch, who Who's is a legendary. catch wrestler from um, originally from, from Hungary. And he goes and trains. He was a, an Olympian and Greco-Roman. And he, he trained in professional wrestling when it was also a much more reality-based product. But then he goes to the Snake Pit in Wigan, England, and trains with Billy Riley, who is one of the godfathers of Catches Catch Can Wrestling, which the term itself uh, comes from Wigan, England. Catches Catch Can, with, like get him, get him any way you can, mm. where these old, these you know tough as shit miners get out from the mines at the end of the day. They go and they have their pints and what have you, and then they go up on the hills and in the grass and they they throw bets down and they just challenge each other and go after it. And this eventually starts to become what we know as uh, professional wrestling. And at some point, professional wrestling is a 100% legitimate sport. But then it starts becoming worked over time. How did it become worked? Did it become worked because of carnivals? Like what? what? The carnivals were a part of it because you could, like, let's say you got Tootsmont and, oh, God, I'm trying to remember the rest of them. Uh, they, the Gold Dust Trio, they go around up and down the north, uh, up and down the west coast, and they go and they put these shows together, but one of the, the tricks that they would do is they could have someone who's a ringer, like a real like nasty badass, who is either in the crowd to go wrestle someone that didn't know who this person was and go in and just murk them and take all their money. Or here's the other thing is they set it up where they have a guy in the ring doing all these matches, just smashing up all the locals. And then they say, well, who, who's, willing, who's willing to get in here next? And then they have a guy sitting in the audience who is their plant. He gets in the ring. He wins. And then they, everybody bets against him. Mm. The Gold Dust Trio bets on him and takes all the money and away uh. they go. And so this is also where the terminology of marks comes in because the audience, everyone's a mark. Uh. <laughs> it's a con. So that was the beginning of theatrical pro, pro wrestling. That was the beginning of, of conning stuff and, and setting up a potential predetermined. But then it also got to the point where really highly skilled, evenly matched guys could be out there for an hour and a half. And, mm. and it's just like, uh, people don't want to watch this. 
they want to watch more action-packed, right, right, action-oriented right. stuff. And so then you start working the matches and putting more um, flourishes and things in it. It becomes more popular, more interesting. Yeah. And then you start, I mean, the basic premise of professional wrestling still exists. And that is you have a face and a heel. So basically you have a good guy and a bad guy. And the good guy is trying to overcome the bad guy. And at some point he will go through all kinds of torment and suffering and what have you. And then come out on the other side victorious and overcome the problem. It is just, it's basically the hero's journey contained in a little four-sided ring mm. and oftentimes pro wrestling does a great job of mirroring the sentiments of the culture around it at large and uh you know this actually would be a really great conversation to have with eric weinstein because he's such a huge pro wrestling fan is he he's really got, he's massive and he has this <laughs> he's got this great series it hasn't been finished yet he's got two parts where you know it's got clips of him talking about kayfabe on right. here and and uh work shoots and all this kind of stuff in terms of politics and culture mostly politics but uh but so the idea of it on a on a metaphysical level he would he would enjoy that conversation i think and i and i got to connect with him i was uh, i was just talking to him the other day he's like are you in la i'm like i uh, i'm actually heading to austin to go hang out with folks and go go do some stuff but i'm coming back uh but so pro wrestling starts getting worked at some point but then it starts getting even more and more uh, exorbitant and outrageous and you start getting guys like uh, Gorgeous George and you start you know, people that are, that are really playing to these big uh, personalities and cutting promos and then you get the territories that start they, they start branching out and each one would have sort of their own spin on things but at one point pro wrestling was the way it was like MMA is now except yeah. It was mainly confined to straight matches of grappling with submissions. But, you know, you'd have incidents like Ad Santel. He beats this world judo champion from the Kodokan. And he goes, well, I'm the world champion of judo now. And the Kodokan goes, what the fuck? The hell you are? Get him. And so all these guys keep coming after Ad Santel. They eventually have this giant showdown in Yasukuni Jinja, the shrine in Japan, and he does, I don't remember, three matches over five days or something like that. And he knocks one guy out in a jacket match. So they made them both wear jackets. Like for kimonos? this one. Yes. And he slams a guy and TKOs him, wins oh, that wow. match. And he essentially the catch guys beat the judo guys at that point. But then it doesn't end. It keeps going. The judo guys get some wins. There's draws. There's this. And eventually Ad just goes, that's enough. Okay, I got it. I, don't, I, I can't keep this up. I'm not the world judo champion anymore. I, I, I'm shutting the fuck up about this. Because <laughs> they were not letting it go. And of course, regardless of Ad Santel being able to come out on top, these were no slouches. These were tough as shit dudes. Yeah. And in a more, in a more, uh, yeah, look That's at that him? dude. You wow. can imagine that dude was probably strong as shit. Jacked. Yeah. And this is pre-creatine. Yeah. Oh yeah, very <laughs> pre, much so. This is, all, this is all very much truly horse meat and bone yeah. marrow and, all that good stuff. And just hardcore working out. Exactly. One of the things about Carl Gotch in particular was like he was legendary for his requirements of fitness. It's true. It did, is you, did you get a chance true. to train personally? I with got him? to train a, a bit with Carl, although he was he didn't ask me to do all the requirements and all that. And I met him through a, a magazine interview where Gong Togi brought me over to meet with him in Tampa. And I believe Jake Shannon helped set it up, in fact. 
because uh, Jake and Carl were really close. And then eventually Billy and Jake would be become very close because uh, I brought Billy to Jake because Billy left Japan and came back to America and was living in Arkansas with some of his family. And I said, hey, um, can we do something with Billy here? Like get him doing seminars, something. Let's keep him active. Let's put some money in his pocket. Let's do something. And Jake structured this whole thing and got Billy out to the rest of the world. And it was amazing. Wow. And and it was so incredible that Jake was able to to do this for Billy and bring Billy to everyone and, you know, have some of this stuff taped, do these seminars and and expose again what was old is now new. What was Carl's conditioning routine that he required of students before they were able That's to learn? That's a good question. I don't know exactly what it was, but it's it was something like a thousand squats and 500 Hindu push-ups and, you know, something, something. It was, it was a pretty rigorous thing. And if you wouldn't, if you couldn't complete it, he wasn't going to teach you. But right. I think a lot of that was, well, number one, he believed that conditioning is your greatest hold. That is a direct quote from Carl Gotch. But also it showed how serious you were. Mm. A lot of people always say, oh, hey, Joe, you know, I want to be a comedian too. You know, what do I, and you're like, no, you don't. You're not really serious about it. You see my success, you see these things, you think, well, I could have that. It's like you have no idea how much, you know, it's the iceberg concept. You know, you see this, but underneath it all was all this toiling and suffering and failing and all these different things to get to this point. And you could look at someone like, you're not ready to fail. You're not even ready to fail yet. You're not yeah. ready to suck yeah. to get to being good. And it's the same with someone like Carl. You know, all these people will come around, oh, yeah, teach me. I, I'll be the best in the world. I'm going to be, it's like, yeah, sure you are. Can, you know, show me some conditioning. You're, you're out of shape. You can't do it. You don't. You can't. You're, you're garbage. You don't. You don't. You don't take this as seriously as what it needs to be to actually be successful. Let alone be able to be on Joe Rogan level or Carl Gotch level or Antonio Noki or what have you. Yeah. It just. It's people. Even back then, weren't necessarily in for that kind of ride. Let alone these days. Yeah, so, let alone these days. Yes. But to, to imagine somebody requiring that, like uh -huh. a Carl Gotch-type guy today, before he takes on any students, what a small pool of talent you'd have to draw from. This is true. And while it's not something I put my athletes through, per se, I, uh, you know, I don't take on new students either. I just don't do it. And people come at me all the time like, nah. Yeah, people like to say that, like, you're not a coach unless you take someone from, like, white belt all the way to, like, world championship level. I mean, there's something to be said about that. But there's, sort of. There's a lot of different, sort of. I mean, coaching is levels of coaching. There is absolutely levels of yeah, coaching. there's elite coaching. Yes. You know, like, a, an elite fighter needs an elite coach, and you don't need to be working with someone who doesn't understand a jab. Like, right. You don't have to. Like, this idea, like, there's a, there's a sort of hierarchy of coaching where people think that if you don't take someone from the ground up if you don't like really work with like bottom level athletes mm -hmm. and, and bring them into top top shape but i don't i don't buy it i don't that. i don't necessarily i mean there are people i've started from near ground zero and brought up i mean victor when i got him he had five amateur fights mm. uh but um it's also something let's say like this there's guys that can teach you all these techniques and how to lift and blah, 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 right? They, they, they're, they're giving you all this structure. and But beyond teaching you how to throw punches and do this, there's also the concept of why. And not just why for you. Why for you versus this guy? Why for you at this time? Why for you based on what your body's doing? I mean, there's all these different contextual and subjective elements that come into this whole thing. And I was talking to – I had three three – Three athletes I worked with uh, fight at LFA 
last weekend. You know, me and Chad George uh, are working with these these athletes, and so Lou Schwenke goes out there, knocks a dude out in the first round. Chase Gibson has a great scrap back and forth with uh, Javier Garcia, who's very tough. He wins an unanimous decision, and then Ozzy Diaz goes out and knocks his guy out in the first round. And I'm talking to someone, and I go, yeah, there's a lot of folks that can like get a guy all pumped up and teach him how to throw a bunch of punches and do all this kind of stuff, but can they actually break down the opponents and all their their tendencies, all their 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 like being able to see through that athlete and go like, okay, when things are at their best, here's what they're going to do. When things are at their worst, here's what they're likely to do. Mm. You know, here's their tendencies. Here here's the things that that you can pretty much count on that they're always going to go to. You know, when when things get tough, when when things are at their hardest, people are always going to go to what they're best at. And then it's also to look at your athlete and go, okay, how do I need to structure this guy's fight, not just on the day, but in all the training leading up to it, so that he's able to mitigate the strengths of his opponent and emphasize his own strengths and keep away from his weaknesses. And there's that aspect, and then there's the mental aspect of how to get into that person's head and give them the right motivation or the right comfort or whatever is necessary at that moment to get them at their best. Did you ever work with a sports psychologist? No. No? I just you, Do you read any? Yes. Yeah. I, I read some books. I actually, on uh, uh, one of them that was a real eye-opener was one on coaching women. And there was all kinds of great little bits of knowledge that I got out of that, just for general coaching and for working with female athletes. Uh, this thing was written by uh, a female volleyball coach, and I wish I could remember the name of it. Mm. Uh, it, was a, it was an excellent book, though. And then it was just, I think... Just paying attention, reading about things like psychology and philosophy and other things. I mean, it's one thing to say to read philosophy, let's say, but um, you know, reading Nietzsche for me is not just about philosophy. It's about human behavior. It's about it's about psychology. It's you know, they call him like the first psychologi- psychologist philosopher in a way. And so, just being open enough to let the world show you what it is. And for people to show you who they are, because you'll come, yes, everyone's an individual, they all have their idiosyncrasies, but in most ways, we're more alike than we're different. And Mm. we've been more alike in almost entirely the same ways since anyone has ever been able to write about what a human being is like, period. If you read about ancient Greece, if you read read in the Bible or the Quran or any, whatever, you you grab yourself a cuneiform tablet or you start reading hieroglyphs. You're not going to get a radically new, different story about what a human being is, how they think, how they feel, what are their motivations, and what it takes for, for flourishing. It's never changed. You know, you can say that we've evolved, but we're no really, but on what level? I mean, maybe we still have society like the remnants of a, of a tailbone, yeah. but, but even <clears throat> in society and as it evolves, technology may more emphasize how we interact with the world and things and, and maybe the intensity at which we may um, express ourselves for good or for bad, but it's not new. Envy is still there. Egos are still mm. there. Ego, ego from the point of being healthy to the point of being unhealthy. Same with envy. Um, same with resentment. All, all this stuff is all the same, same shit. You go read Gilgamesh. It's all the same shit. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not telling new stories. We're telling the same story over and over and over again. Um, and I think that as a coach, beyond that, you know, deeper meaning of 
being and humanity. But at the same time, it's just allow yourself to be open to see things. Let, let people tell you who they are. And if you really are interested in trying to be about something, it's not always about charging headlong into it. Sometimes it's about sitting back and just shutting the fuck up and listening, listening to someone who's telling you something or just uh, listening in a, in a metaphorical sense, just allowing things to show you something. Let, let, watch that footage over and over and over again and, mm. and throw your preconceived notions aside and just let it happen and then see how much you start seeing that repeats itself. Yeah, there's probably a great benefit in learning how to teach women because uh, from my personal experience, women um, learn better in a sense that they don't have as much ego in when it comes to martial arts and they also don't muscle things. True. Um, I think that teaching all types of people is, is incredibly useful uh, and I liked teaching women a lot, especially because they smelled better, <laughs> took better <laughs> care of themselves. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a, you can't go out there generally and just start screaming at a girl like, why are you so stupid? Right, right. They're going to take that in a whole different way. Although I've had athletes that were females that needed more tough love than they needed more gentle guidance. And, mm. and, and to that, it just came down to the individual athlete themselves. Right. And I feel like you need to learn how to coach women and men. And then in and amongst that, you then need to know how to coach every single woman, every single man on an individual right. level because they're not just women. They're not just men. They're individuals. And, and you so, got to get to know them. Exactly. And so that's another reason why I'm not necessarily very eager or driven to just start pulling in new athletes because to me, I'm not just teaching you how to fight. I'm going to take a mentorship role in your life. I'm going to be managing your career. I'm going to be helping you when you do something dumb in your relationship or something fucks up or you make some bad mistake. I'm going to be there for that. And, you know, I don't it's penny it's it's penny or a pound, penny and a pound, no matter how small or how severe, I I'm I'm signing up to be a part of this. Yeah. And so I don't want to spend my time on someone that I don't think has the right kind of character. I don't want to bother because I don't it doesn't matter to me if they're going to go out there and win a bunch of titles and give me a bunch of money. It ain't worth it because now I got to hitch my boat to this person. And that says something about my honor and my word. And I just, I don't want nothing to do with something, something like that. If it doesn't, if it doesn't reflect the person that I want to put out there in the world. So what is the process? Like say if an athlete wanted to work with you, like how would you even go about deciding whether or not you'd be interested in that? Mm, I, well, at least one of the things I would do at CSW is, People come up to me, um, and Victor even was part of this process. I mean, he was training with a good friend of mine, Jimmy Romero, and and Jimmy was at Legends uh, when you guys were all there. And at some point, Jimmy's like, "Man, I just can't keep doing this. There's just no, there's not enough money. I'm going broke, and I got stuff to do. And I have a kid on the way. Like this isn't just ain't flying." And he loves martial arts. And Jimmy was just just coming by CMMA the other day and running pads for Chad and all that. It was <laughs> awesome to see him. But uh, I, I completely understood his position. But uh, but what happened is just like, well, okay, there's no more team. But he'd been bringing his guys down to CSW to come train and spar. And and this kid, Victor, was was his protege. And he's a super solid kid. And I could see it. And everybody around him that I knew all vouched for what a good kid this dude was. And he's growing up in Southgate, which is like the Mexican Compton in, in L.A. So it's a rough-ass place. And, you know, he's been shot before just sitting on the on a stoop playing with his friends. And someone does drive by and stray bullet, ping, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, this kid's got a wild life. And 
I'm just like, all right. I call him up. I go, hey, I heard the team is, you know, disbanded and what have you. Be here on Monday. Uh, well, you know, I don't have any money. I just be here on Monday. He shows up. I give him stuff to do. Come check in on him. He's been doing it. You know, all right. Now I start taking a more personal approach. Now I'm really, now I'm more right beside him as I'm doing things. He gets it that, okay, if you're serious about it and I tell you something, and if you don't do it, that's your choice. If it's not that important to you, you're not going to do it. All right. If it's not important to you, then it's not important for me to give it to you in the first place. Not important for me to spend my time on you. Vic then says this to another athlete at the school who was brought in, who is who had come up to me before and goes, man, I see what you're doing with Victor and some of these other folks and, and you know, they're having a lot of success and, and I really like the way that you're working with them. You know, would it be possible if I could work under you? And I just said, yeah, let me think about it. And then at some point, I think he, this guy, fighter under me, A.J. Bryant, another great kid, heavy hitter, and uh, he's got a fight coming up in May. He goes to Vic on the side. He goes, hey, man, what, what does that even mean? I'll think about it. I mean, what is – and Vic just turns to him and goes, look, if he just – you show up. You keep showing up. You train your ass off. He's going to come over to you at some point, and he's going to give you something to do. He's going to tell you something, whether it needed to be done here or it needs to be done outside of the ring, outside of the gym. But he's going to come to you and he's going to say something. If you don't do it, if you're not, he's just going to be like, you're not serious and that's it. Fuck off. <laughs> and so, you know, eventually I come over. I'm like, all right, hey, do this. I just leave. Or, you know, I start feeding him little bits and I see, no, this kid is serious. He, he really does want it. And then I take him on. I take AJ under my wing. I start working with him all the time. He's a part of the team. He's part of the team. We're all going. We're all training. Turn him pro after his last amateur MMA fight. I turn to him. I go, all right, that's enough of that. You've got enough experience for fucking free, fighting for free. That's it. You're going pro. Let's move on. And he's like, uh, okay. And then boom, I have him fighting like five or six times in a year, like right off the bat. Mm. And it's like, if you're serious, I'm going to get you placing him. Taking, took him to Russia. I'm fighting all over the U.S. It's like, We're going to do it. But what you got? anything I'm going to ask of my athletes is not going to be any less than anything I've ever done, and in terms of severity or intensity, and oftentimes it's it is less. <laughs> it's like you guys are gonna have to, you're gonna get the benefit of all the shit I had to do, and and all the things that have created new structure for us as athletes now to take advantage of. And mm. but that same underlying sentiment about being the meanest, toughest motherfucker out there. And whether you go down or you your your hand is raised at the end of the day, you keep your head high the same way. And even with you know, someone like Howney, I I met Howney before that fight in Brazil when I was training with Pedro Hizo and uh, Master Roberto Leitao, rest in peace. And I remember Pedro going, "Hey man, this kid at my gym, and this kid is dynamite. He is such a badass." And I met him, and I'm watching him, and I got to roll with him a little bit and get to see him. And so I run into him again, even before the fight. And he's like, "Oh hey, hey master." I'm like, "Oh, oh hey, hey, we met in Brazil." He's like, "Yes, no, that was me." And it's like, "Fuck, you know, God." Well, at the end of the day, it sucks that one of you has to win and one of you is going to lose. Mm. But, and you'll see this even at the end of the fight, the way Victor approaches, like, it's nothing but love. Me and Pedro, we couldn't be happier for our athletes. And even though I know how many lost the fight, if he had won, 
I'd still be happy for Howney. I'd still have a lot of love for him and be like, man, Pedro, that's amazing. You guys are great. I'm so good. And, and to, to have the opportunity to fight people that have that kind of respect mm. and, and love uh, of martial arts, you know, it, all right, cool. Uh, that's a, That brings up an interesting point because one of the things that's happening today in, in MMA, and it seems it has a lot of elements of pro wrestling in it, is that there's a lot of shit talking for yep. promotion. Yep. And, you know, Chael Sonnen was probably the best at it at one point in time. He's great. And then Connor came along, yep. and Connor's amazing at it. Now, you know, Colby is off the charts with it. And maybe some people think he, he goes too far with it, but that's like a lack of the martial arts respect. That is just pure showmanship and salesmanship to try to mm -hmm. get people excited about fights. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? It makes complete sense in the era we live in. Mm. We This is a, a, a world that is, uh, it is a degraded form uh, of, of where it's come from. I mean, we, we don't really create anything anymore. We just do, we just make replicas. We do repeats. You know, there aren't original things anymore. They're just, it's just all simulacra. It's. It's as if the knowledge to create new things is gone. It's lost. It is It is a foreign idea anymore. And with fighting, it's like, well, sure, we can become better athletes and we can do all this training and, and what have you. But at the end of the day, we start treating it more as an entertainment sport. And it is entertainment. Don't get me wrong. It really is. But when all you have to offer to get the crowd going is how much you win and then how much racy, spicy shit you talk about your opponent. Not only does that say something about the people employing those means to which you can at least understand to a degree, it's like, well, you know, this is their occupation and they want to get the higher, the higher contract, the higher uh, uh, spot on the card. More they want eyes to be on the, them, right. more attention. But the, the bigger perspective is, that it works is the problem. Mm -hmm. So when people are like, oh, you know, the Kardashians, they're the worst. I hate all this reality TV shit and blah, it's terrible. Okay. But people are watching it. So who's terrible? The Kardashians or the audience? Well, in that sense, neither. Because what they're doing is they're providing you with like fast food TV. Like to, you don't yeah. have to drive by and and pull into the you know drive it at McDonald's. But what's what's you better? Going. But but I mean, is there, isn't there a distinct difference between eating grass fed beef LQ shot? Yeah, uh, there is. Yeah, but, and versus fast food. But and so, don't you like the fact that if you feel like it, you can pull into a drive through and get a Big Mac? It's all right. But I know I that, don't necessarily want one. No. But if I do want one, I like that I can get one. I like that I can get one, but I also never lie to myself in that I'm not doing that I, to try to say to my I'm doing something that's even neutral because I'm right. not. Right. And that's you know well, if neither, I want we're not doing anything neutral with this whiskey either. Oh, this whiskey's beautiful stuff, man. It's Are you kidding stuff, me? It's, it's beautiful stuff, but, it, but, it, but I understand that. But right. but I choose to engage in a vice as a vice and not try to treat it as a virtue. There's probably some fatso out there with a cheeseburger right now just moaning in pleasure. I'm sure oh. he is an actually ecstatic, oh. orgasmic. Oh, this quarter pounder's uh, oh, so yeah. good. It's like double, double quarter pounder with cheese, yeah. just all those trans in moderation? fats. Yeah. In moderation? I get it, but but it's the it's approaching it as, saying. yeah, and it, it's the approach. And yeah. 
I, I love the shit out of whiskey, which has a long history and lineage to how you make it. And, you know, you can go into all the different types of stills, the different types of yeast, the, the you know, if it's Scotland, it's, it's almost entirely barley. And, and if it's over, whether it be malted or not, then you've got Irish and then you've got all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between, say, I don't know, like just distilling whatever, throwing a bunch of sugar in it. To, because it tastes horrible and you're trying to cut all the all those heads down and be so make it palatable and then like slugging it no, down I after you've it. added caramel coloring into it and everything but so, to bring it back to mma this this trend does it bother you at all when you see like like right now we're dealing we're this is very recent uh, in, into the Kobe Covington Jorge Masvidal mm-hmm, fight mm-hmm. just happened and then Jorge Masvidal just sucker punched Kobe yes, at a restaurant yes. somewhere yeah the sucker punching is i'm not down for that at all uh, even you know, if if there is some sort of a, an issue that 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 Masvidal has about say like don't talk you, you talked about my kids that was like the one thing or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that, totally fine with that. Like to me, that's just that's that's honor culture things. Like you should understand that there's not that there should be a line that you shouldn't cross in terms of aspects of civility. Otherwise, expect nothing but hostility, and that is a choice. That's why we had all of these concepts of of manners and courtesies was because violence is at the the bottom of every word you speak. Violence is at the bottom of every exchange. Literally, politics is war uh, by other means. So (laughs) Louis XIV had all of his canons inscribed in Latin, the last word of kings, the last argument of kings. Mm. Because when it comes down to it, violence is at the it is the golden rule. It is the thing that is at the the, the absolute bedrock of, of human interaction. It enforces laws. It, it, it absolutely does. It enforces laws. It also, it, it's about sovereignty too. And, uh, y- you know, someone like try, once tried to argue because I said, well, you know, rights are what you can, you know, rights are, are an abstract concept. You know, I mean, I, I understand the concept of Lockean property rights and all these things and it's, and it's wonderful, but... What you can't, rights are what you can defend mm. at the end of the day. You know, if you're like, well, I deserve to have this right and that right, it's like, well, who provides them for you? How do you keep them? How do you keep someone from saying, no, you don't? You use somebody else's violence, you proxy it out to a state, or you have to do it yourself. And that's, that is, you're not getting away from that ever, nowhere, anywhere. And we live in such, we live in a society where all of this is, is violence is something that happens to other people now. Violence is, is, is that something that's done by someone else on our behalf. We yeah. don't take any accountability for it. We don't have, and, 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 and with that, it's like, if someone says, don't talk about my fucking kids and my family, and you cross that line, okay, if he does nothing about it, well, if he just goes and whinges on, on Twitter about it, what does that mean? That means nothing. If he goes and like calls the cops, well, he talked about my, and the cops just go like, well, that's within his legal rights. He can say whatever the fuck he wants. Sorry. Then how do you get him to stop doing it? But do you think that what Sucker punching him wasn't good. No. 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 He should have been like, I told you what's on. Where if I see you, but they, they, I don't and think like he's come gonna, with me and come outside. Is, like if he does that, Kobe's going to take him down. Uh, and that's that's that, what happened in the deal fight. Deal with it. Yeah, but you know it's what? like if you want to fight someone and yeah. you fight someone and you lose, I feel like at a certain point in time you got to accept what happened. There, I think there's a way of of creating 
through these conflicts some aspect of mutual understanding and respect, in fact, and that. Okay, it's so the, how, what does that look like though between those two guys? I mean, it look like I, I don't know them personally. No, no, that ain't gonna right. do it. That ain't so, gonna do it. That because again, you didn't you hit him when he wasn't looking. Right. It's like, well, okay, how am I supposed? You, essentially, what you're asking for is for me to give you a certain modicum of respect, and for to not pass certain lines in terms of courtesies because this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. How are you gonna get them to do that when you you cheap shot them? Right. It's so just not gonna do? happen. I mean, it's like this. I had a guy once that, and this is, it's not happened many times, and, you know, I'm not one to go out there and shit talk people at all. I'm not, because for me, it's just like, well, I don't need to talk shit about you. I'm just going to go out and fight you. If I have a real personal problem, I'll let you know, and that isn't about me getting a fight. It's not about me like, oh, I'm trying to drum up. No. Right. We can fight in a professional sense, and that's all good. If you want to make this personal, it ain't going to be professional. It's for real. And you shouldn't do it and because I don't want to do it. I'm not trying to live my life this way. But if you make this the case, it, it's it's for real and it's on. And so I had this guy talking just out of nowhere just started shit talking to me. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy's problem? I don't get it. And so- This is a fighter? Yeah, it's a fighter. And so I'm just like, what the, f-? you know, I've never said two bad words about this guy ever. Never. I, I'm not going to talk shit about him. And, and he's just blah, 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 blah. Like, all right. So I, <laughs> he starts going in. So I, I responded in kind and you know, I started ripping on him a bit. He ran his mouth some more. And at the time, I remember my manager that I had, he's like, oh, well, you know, you can go. I go, no, 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 no. This isn't, I'm not getting in the ring with this guy so I can make him a bunch of money and give him notoriety and all this after I beat his ass. Like, no, uh-uh, you don't get to make a bunch of money off of my name. I go, look, we're going to be out at this event and if that dude's there, and I'm here with Hammer, if that dude comes up to me and starts running his mouth, I'm going to tell him once, and then when I see that motherfucker go to the bathroom, I'm going to have Hammer come with me, Hammer's going to block the door, and I'm going to fucking tear him apart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in, I said, I fucking told you, you're looking me dead in the eyes, put your hands up, we're going. If you can see when we leave, you'll be lucky. If I haven't bit off pieces of flesh out of your body, you'll be lucky. If you can fight again after this, you'll be lucky, but I told you. And my manager's like, what? don't do that. And I go, Mm-mm, it's not up to me. It's up to them. Nothing happened. Nothing ever happens, to be honest. Uh, but it's just, don't fuck around with these things. Hold yourself in high esteem. And with that, give that to other people until they give you a reason not to. And then just be like, you know what? I don't fuck with you. It's so, no good. So this brings us to last night. Yeah. This brings us yes, to uh, Will Smith walking on stage where... Chris Rock said one of the most mild jokes ever. <laughs> it was pretty mild. Jada I, I Pinkett so. is uh, bald. Apparently, I didn't know this. I found out after the fact that it's she didn't shave her head voluntarily. She shaved her head because she's suffering from alopecia. Yeah, I didn't know this either. So I don't know if Chris knew this, uh, but Chris says a joke around uh, G.I. Jane 2, looking forward to it, very mild, just mm-hmm. laughed, and even said, come on, that was nice. And then Will Smith initially laughs, yes. but it looked like Jada was upset. Mm-hmm. And so Will changes his tune, walks on stage, and smacks Chris Rock in the face at the Oscars. Uh, and then says, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Yes, he does. And then he goes, come on, man, that was a G.I. Jane joke. He, and he screams it out like, keep my wife's yeah, name yeah. out your fucking mouth. Yes. And it's like his lips were quivering and he... First of all, 
that is a that whole scene doing that in that manner in that place is a great example of what's wrong with the the glorification of just being able to go up to someone and smack them in the face because that mm. is that that whole thing was so I'm disagree weird. with you here please do well what, what is your but take i, I want to let you before i want, you, I want you to finish though well, no, you said you were going to disagree with me. Yeah, yeah. What, do you, what do you think? Well, I, I don't actually think that there's any glorification of violence in the sense of free capability on, on Will's part. What do you mean by that? Well, for one, I, I don't think that there was any inherent given that you could just get away with it. I think that whatever Will did, he did it, and he was like, whatever comes with it, that that you know, I'll have to own up to it. I don't think he was thinking that far ahead at all. Uh, maybe he wasn't, but I maybe think he he's was like being in this emotionally moment, fragile, probably, and he acted on impulse. Sure, and I think it's a foolish impulse that you you do when you know there's no consequences. I so don't you're think. But a here's very the thing: I'm going to say that I don't know that he thinks that there's uh, now in terms of hitting Chris in in terms of them in their physical differences and capability of of combat. Let's say. Yes. There's no consequences. But I'm saying, but well, but there's no consequences in getting out of your seat and striking somebody on national television. Yeah, but I don't think he was thinking about that. I think he was acting you impulsively. Simply in terms of yeah. uh, man to man and what who's capable and what's capable. And you know what? That may be the case um, in, 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 in the microcosm of things. But if you hit anybody for any reason in public at this point – you have the the very real fact of all of the powers of law that be, especially depending on who you were, who you are, and what the public and the cathedral thinks of you, smashing you to death until you have you're penniless, bankrupt, and everyone oh, hates that's you. Not and stop! That's not going to happen here. Like, probably it, it was not. never going to happen. Probably he, he not. just smacked him. But he, smacked, he didn't beat the shit out of him. He didn't harm him. But, he I mean, smacked but, him in but, the but face. We live and in a society him. where violence is so. But there's no way stop. Well, there's no way Will Smith's going to become penniless from smacking Chris Rock. I, I that was have, never. You that wouldn't was never, think so. You wouldn't no, think he's so. He's extremely wealthy. It's not going to happen. And not only that, Chris Rock instantly didn't press charges. He, w he wouldn't press charges, and he just accepted it. I would say it should have been handled in 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 the back, or he could have at least he could have st stood up, said something right on the spot. But listen, no. And not done no, anything no, no, about no, no, or, or Chris Rock's doing his fucking job. You don't go and sit in the front row. You're a star yeah. at the Oscars. There's a professional comedian whose job yes. is to roast people. That's what he's doing. And what he did was not even insulting. It's not about. It was a mild joke. It's not about. What is it? It's not about giving Will Smith a pass or saying what he did was right. But what I am saying is that from his perspective, if it was that important. He could have, he could have, barring going up there and hitting Chris in front of everyone, and he could have at least he could have he could have said something if he had to do it right then and there, uh, if he felt that it was that egregious of of a remark. And and I agree with you, Chris Rock's a, a comedian. The presenters at the Oscars are supposed to be entertainers, often crack jokes that either a that they do themselves in chris's perspective or from chris's situation or ones that are written for him chris is a comedian i highly doubt that they don't know each other at this point being in hollywood for as long as they have and in my opinion if you really want to settle things go do it personally 
speak to the person first, give them an opportunity to apologize for things, especially if they didn't realize that what they were doing was I, I hear all the things you're saying, but they're not applicable. That was not an insult. It was the most mild joke about her hairstyle I fully in reference get it. to a movie where a lady shaved it. her head. I fully get it. But like, I'm, the I'm idea just simply that there's saying any it, justification right. whatsoever of him getting up there and no. smacking him in the face no. like he didn't, that. He didn't need to go up there and smack him at all. No. But regardless of what you and I think of how important or how what, what, the, what the weight of what Chris said was, just taking removing us out of the equation, if it's really that important to Jada— and therefore, it then becomes important to Will, then he should deal with it on a personal level and have a conversation with Chris f- before anything. Of course. Because you have to give of someone course. the opportunity because, one, you have to assume potentially that, that Chris had malicious intent in what he had to say. Well, how do you have malicious intent in a mild joke? Tell There's me no about malicit- it. No, it's, I'm it's saying nonsense. I don't agree I'm that he did. I'm telling you, dude, this is all rational thinking about an irrational act. <laughs> What, what that was, act, but... he was emotionally fragile and he acted on impulse in a staggeringly stupid way. I'll tell you something. Somebody, a, a good dude who I know didn't mean any harm, was kind of, you know, playfully, sp- verbally sparring with, with my girlfriend. And she didn't, actually, it made her really uncomfortable and she didn't really like it. And so the next time we run into him and my girlfriend's like, I hope he doesn't, you know, come up and say X, Y, Z again. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't think that's going to happen. And he does. And I'm like, okay. So I pull him to the side and I'm like, hey, look, I know you don't mean anything by it, but, you know, X, Y, Z. And we just have a simple conversation and the guy's just like, yeah, yeah good. I don't want to have rational. a problem. But, 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 that's a rational response. I get it. To, to hu- two human beings having some sort of a dispute. But to assume people have malicious intent, especially in that position... I think is an erroneous way of approaching it. So I don't, I don't think I don't think it had anything to do with that. I think what he was doing was so you don't think saving Will, face. You think so? He, he was doing some weird movie thing. It was like he he was hmm. getting away with it as if he was living in a fictional movie. Hmm. Like the idea that you think it's smart while wearing a tuxedo to walk onto a stage in front of the world, hmm. like literally the world, one of the hmm. biggest award shows on earth, if not the biggest, and smack a comedian for the most yes. mild joke, and then sit there quivering, saying, With keep anger, my yeah. wife's name out of your fucking mouth, and everybody's just gonna sit there in the shit that you just took on the table. You just pulled your pants down and took a shit on the dinner table, and they all have to just sit there and look at that. That's what it's like. A shit it's, with, full of peanuts and corn and everything. It stinks. It's just the whole idea behind <laughs> it mean, is completely irrational. But what I'm saying is like these people live in this fake world of, you know, you're you're protected by guards. You're driven by limos. You're on the red carpet. You know, like all of it is crazy life. And he's so goddamn famous and so so removed from regular discourse and interaction with regular people that he, for whatever reason in his head, acted like he's a character in a movie. Maybe so. And and I only am not speaking in definites in regards to Will because I don't know the man. I never met him. All these things that you're saying could could absolutely be 100% plausible and true. And especially a person like Will, who is in such an elevated position in society at large, and you are 100% right in that these types of folks get removed from reality. 
um, for a variety of reasons. But it's often a, a catastrophic process to the person and how they approach the world. Yeah, but here's what happened right afterwards. He won the Academy Award and then goes up and does a speech. The whole thing was so bizarre. And it made me think, like, how many other human beings could be in a similar situation and pull mm. that off? Not like, many. Like if a man walked on stage and smacked a woman. Not, that would not fly. Would not fly. Not fly. If a woman walked on stage and smacked another woman, I don't even think it would fly. Probably not. Probably not. But but also, man smacking a woman, we already, like, it's, I feel like it's even an ingrained thing. Like, you don't fucking do that. I think Number two, have... women smacking women, all the women are going to look back and be like, women don't solve their their issues with violence. You're supposed to, you know, tear them down in, in other ways. And like women... When women start feuding with one another and one of them finally says, that's it, and they go to violence, it's almost as if they they, they lost completely. Like mm -hmm. all the other women are like, ah, you broke. Sorry, you're out. Well, I don't know. I mean, just simply because women work, just general, world star hip hop videos of women beating the fuck out of each other. You can find a lot of videos <laughs> online of you know women uh, in Walmart parking lots pulling yes, each other's hair. Yes, there are exceptions. I will agree. The shit out of each other. I, I, I will agree. But there I just are think, exceptions. in terms of society standards, I don't think they would have accepted it the same way. No, it's like it was a, a rare instance where someone is so enormously famous and successful like Will Smith that they literally still allowed him to not just win the Academy Award, but also go up and accept it and give a speech after he assaulted a small comedian Yeah, they should have ejected stage. him. They should have ejected him from the show. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I agree with that. You don't just you can't just go smack a man in the face in front of the world and then go about business as usual. First of all, it sets a terrible precedent. Yes. In, in in so many different ways. So it's a terrible precedent for comedy clubs. Yes. Like, are people going to yes. decide that they're going to go on stage and Ooh, smack the comedian I now? hope they try to smack Brendan or you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to see one Joe Rogan turning sidekick. <laughs> yeah! Chuggy! <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think people are going to change their behavior, but dumb people might. But also, it's just like, what are we saying as a society when... The, the people that we look up to for whatever reason, for good or for bad, mm -hmm. we look up to actors. Yes. And, and the Academy Awards is supposed to be them in their most regal, their most regal outfits, yeah. their best behavior. Yeah. And to drop down to violence for something so innocuous as a G.I. Jane joke. It's, uh, look, man, it's not the hill that I'm looking to necessarily die on either. To, in, in term whatever the in particular context and and you know i had you know having a conversation with somebody over something that was that made my girlfriend uncomfortable was to me that was the way to approach it but i guess if someone was you know wanted to tell me fuck you about it then it's like mm, okay right. well now that changes things right of you course know, you, you don't care how it affects other people and right. you're not actually have you you're having consideration for me or my girlfriend or I know what you you're know. saying but in this case we saw it no we I I'm, see all the elements look, laid out Chris Rock's it. joke was yes. so mild I get it and so you know Jade is allowed to take offense and Will's allowed to take offense but to jump up run on stage, slap him, and then throw the scene that he did is a completely different story. It was a meltdown. To at least to go and give Chris an opportunity to talk to him, and maybe even Jada, and just be like, look, one, you can see that he did not mean to, to try and cause any actual harm to you. So, you know what? Just tell him. If, if you didn't like it, tell him face-to-face -face and be like, yo, man, I, 
it really, you know, hey, Jada, well, that would be, it really bugged that's, you. You're talking about two totally different I things. I get it. We both agree with that. But we to both me, agree with regardless that. of whether you're Will Smith or you're, or you're, you're uh, um, the other Will Smith, the the former like special forces guy who speaks Russian was in all tons of like seventies and eighties movies. He played Conan's dad and Conan the Barbarian, oh. like that badass motherfucker. You could be that guy, the this other super popular Will Smith or Will Smith that nobody actually knows who that person is. The approach has to be the same. There is no exception for you if you played Ali or if you played Conan's dad or if nobody's seen you play anything even with yourself. Well, I think what we're looking at also is the culmination of uh, a long period of like emotional distress. Like that family's been public about all their issues and you know there's a conversation that they had to have like to the two of them together about infidelity or they don't about need that, open the- relationships and they were openly <sighs> mocked because of that. But I think there's a certain defensiveness that comes along with that. Well, then you when know you've what? Been out sit in the public fucking, getting, when you've been out in the term. public getting mocked. Like, sit, sit in it then. Sit yeah. in it then. Because the public is mocking you for the thing that you brought to them. Yeah, listen, I'm, I agree, I'm in agreement yeah. with you, you know, 100%. So, so for me, I'm like, look, if you think you're, if you're adding stress into your life by publicizing and externalizing everything, which, again, says something more about the state of things like why are you externalizing this shit right you know what i mean like even when i told this story about oh you know this fighter and i had beef i ain't gonna say his name right because you know what i'm not trying to create more beef right because i'm not trying to live my life even though i'm the war master in some point of irrational unnecessary conflict when conflict comes conflict if it, if it has to get to that yes then but that's it's, my whole point it's destroy everything you're a man of honor and of like deep moral principles and ethics you, you you have a very rigid way you live your life with discipline that's my whole point of this yes like, this is a nonsense you're scene right where you're allowed to just go smack someone you're right like that is a non-consequential right. move that's like you're saying there's no consequences to this i'm gonna go up and smack him in front of everybody right. and i get I'm away with it give him the fucking yes. the whatnot you know, you you do this. We live in unreality, Joe. Yeah, we that, live in unreality, hyper reality. Yeah. You know, I've heard it coined. We live in a, a massively unserious place, from our populace to our to our people that we put on pedestals within media, mm-hmm. to our politicians. All these people are dr- massively unserious, and. That's part of the problem we yes. live in, right? And it's what we're seeing represented in the media and in society, whether it's in films or television shows or even in the news in a lot of ways, is so not, it doesn't resonate with what we know to be true and no. real with real life. Like even just the way they communicate, they don't communicate like a real person. No. So, so much of it, we, we've uh, sort of accepted that so much of what you see is bullshit. And I just don't think like living that kind of life where you are that kind of person you're an actor you're constantly on the red carpet you're this this weird public pedestal place yes i think you can get a very distorted sense of reality and i think that's what we saw manifest itself you're 100 percent correct yeah welcome to the iron age the kali yuga yeah enjoy exactly it. Yeah. enjoy it well we were talking about that before and that's kind of where we're at we are in kali yuga we are in kali yuga and, and the hindus were very smart in mm-hmm. the, their idea of it was the Hindus, right? Yes, the Hindus. That, yes, they came up with this idea that there are certain ages, uh, almost unavoidable, yes. of civilization. Correct. So that they go through these cycles. Correct. Um, there is a Nietzsche talked about this. Uh, Rene Guénon, a French philosopher, and Oswald Spengler in the Decline of the West, a volume we wrote two whole giant books on this. And you know, I sent you a quote from Spengler, and I'm like. 
this is from 1922. Mm. And it's talking about the poisonous infiltration of the media into the way people view the world and how there has never been a more powerful machine than this to degrade and deracinate human beings. And all they had was radio back then. They're like, oh, God, this could be a huge problem. They thought the printing press <laughs> yeah. was going to make a huge issue where all people did was just just dream away in books all day long mm. and not actually make anything or create anything. And yet people like Gainon and Spengler and and Nietzsche saw these patterns of human behavior. And I mean, even um, beyond... The cyclical history of the Hindus, Ganon, who takes a lot from the Hindus, and and Spengler. Um, there's also even, uh, was it uh, Strauss and Howe with their fourth turning concept? It was like every 80 years that there's going to be, you know, a complete changeover. You have these, these four ages that you'll go through, uh, like, um, well, how's it go? It's like art, like artist, nomad. Uh, or is it nomad art nomad and then you get hero and then it just keeps repeating itself about every 80 years and Strauss and how think that like uh, our fourth turning will come around 2030 mm. I don't entirely buy into the entirety of the fourth turning concept because it's like oh the millennials are gonna be the hero generation I'm like I don't fucking think so sorry it's just not gonna happen you say no but then you see Gen Z and you go maybe uh, well I mean compared to what compared to what you, you know? almost have to recognize like that the next generation is so fucked up that you have to pick up the slack <laughs> I, I, I truly believe that in, at least this kind of aligns with with uh, with the fourth turning concept in that it takes calamity to change humanity. I believe that and too. part of yeah. what Genon and Nietzsche and you know, Nietzsche's concept is the last man. And this is, you know, you want to re understand this, go read Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, with Genon, start with Crisis of the Modern World. With uh, Spengler, probably Man and Technics is the, is the easiest one to get with. If you feel like it, there's a lot of uh, people have been have now started reproducing his work, so it make it easier to get a hold of because it was hard when I had to get my two copies. I, I found a couple old used ones, and I had to pay like 120 bucks to get them. Now it's a lot cheaper. Um, but there is, I would say, you can go ahead and go with Volume One, Form and Actuality, and Two uh, Perspectives of World History. But be prepared to be in for a, a long haul with mm. that stuff. But what they're going on about is that you'll see these the how the comfort of technology and way I see technology is like basically think of technology as not just illuminating or exposing, right? Like understanding the grains of sand that you can then take and then build into see how you can then create the form of a cup through heat and pressure. And now you have this vessel that can be used to hold things, or it could be a ballistic weapon. It could be all kinds of stuff. However, you know, you want to see what you could do with that cup. Uh, but it's also about abating nature, right? So technology is putting a roof over your head and then running water and lights and, and every little step further away of abating nature from how it can interact or how it can force you to – and your being and existence and your action in the world – you start abating nature, abating nature, abating. Oh, I don't have to walk somewhere anymore. I could get on a bicycle. Well, yeah. I can get off a bicycle and I can ride a horse. Well, I could get off this horse and I have a car. And and each thing makes it so nature has less 
uh, effect on you. And you are abating the effects of uh, terrain, which also another aspect of technology would be the roads to then be able to travel. The Okay, no roads, I'll take a plane or a helicopter or what have you, you know, from the Wright brothers all the way up to 787s. I mean, you, you, Nate Mann starts on this journey of materialism and starts seeing everything as atoms and pieces and parts and things without any spirit to them anymore. This is, you know, uh, back to the thing about EVs. It's just like, well, you know, just make stuff, right? Technology will allow me to do this, so just do it. It's it's a constant conflict of shoulda or coulda instead of shoulda. And, you know, we have a phone that has all this access to all, I, I could go look up audiobooks on YouTube of uh, Ganon and, you know, people's lectures on it, all these different things. But it could also be this thing that deranges me in how I start now having resentment and envy with people I'll never meet, I've never mm. seen in a life that they're manip- that they're carefully constructing to be seen in one mm. way versus the totality of what life is really like for right. anyone. Yeah. And so now you get all these people across all these these platforms that can now reach out way further than any tribe has ever been able to do before. You know, now all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, Dunbar's number says like 200 people that you could actually have a real relationship with. Well, now you've got all these e- electronic relationships on top of that. And they're making you believe as if you're really invested and in, 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 in engaged with this person, but you're not. You know what I mean? And, and at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and just say like everything about social media and electronics and technology is just evil and bad. I'm not calling for like... Uh, it's not even bad. It's just we we don't have the tools like right. genetically or inherently to navigate those worlds rationally. Right. I'm not calling for a Butlerian jihad. You yeah. Know, go what's what's my... going on with technology is that it's there's nothing wrong with it, but what is wrong is not having discipline and not having the ability to accurately assess whether or not something is good for you or bad for you. Yes. And then also having a vast amount of people that are going to take the easy way out and that easy way is provided to them through technology what well, we're, we're generally primed to find easier ways always yeah and that's how you survive yeah exactly yeah um you know you're not going to find you know if a wolf doesn't doesn't have to travel with their pack hundreds of miles to go and get a kill right they ain't going to do it of course if someone just starts chucking food out they're just going to keep going there yeah they're not going to take off. And if you think that we're that far removed from wolves, then you're fucking, you're, well, that's you missed how it. they turned a wolf into a collie. Yes. That's literally how they did it. Yeah. They did it by chucking meat to wolves that came by the campfire and they turned them into dogs. One of my favorite Nietzsche quotes is, uh, verily I have laughed at those who thought themselves good because they had no teeth. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we we are in a precarious situation where the the human animal doesn't have an owner's manual. No, we don't have a a, a great guidebook to how to navigate all the perils of being a person. Well, we do have these guidebooks, but yeah, but even, not one standard. No, that's of course down not. We people. don't have. I mean, yeah, we don't I mean, teach people. How of course, to, we it's could, one of the differences between martial artists and other folks is that yes. you willingly participate in something that develops character and discipline. And and it's it, very different, and it has. It's basically built on the concept of failure, um, you know, trial and error, 
and effort and, and effort and and discipline. Yes. You, and you have to keep showing up, otherwise yes. you don't get the results. And intelligence. You have to be able to navigate problems. The way I always describe MMA, it's high level problem solving with dire physical consequences. Indeed, um, it it is something that. It allows you to create a safe space for suffering, yeah. <laughs> a place where you can go and bleed and sweat with your brothers and sisters yeah. and create community and have deep personal relationships based on the intensity of the activity because I have to trust that if you and I are, are rolling that like, oh, if Joe catches me, he's not just going to break my shit off because um, he feels like it. Instead, he's gonna allow me to tap. And and even then, it's like when I roll with folks, I'll lock something in super tight, and if it's, I start feeling like, uh-oh, this shit's gonna go, right. I back off. Yeah. And I go, look, man, it's not, it's not worth it. And there's been times where I've rolled with po- folks, and, and they don't tap, they think they're gonna get out of it, and like, clack, and I immediately let go. I'm like, oh man, that yeah. I, I don't need you hurt. That's a horrible feeling. If, if you're hurt, we don't get to do this. Right. If and we're not doing this, then neither one of us is growing. Right. And, you know, even even just the 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 thin veneer of oh we're not just hanging out even mm-hmm. in this gym and i like that it's part of the reason why i'm here it's not the only reason but having per- these relationships is part of why i'm here also because i enjoy it we have something something in common which we can we can you know have a rapport about but uh, we you know, there 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 are all these quote unquote owners manuals across time and history and cultures. And they're more alike than they're different. Uh, and there's a lot to be learned from it. And I'm not a theist in any way, but I study religion because there are actual philosophical and metaphysical truths, truths embedded within these things. Mm. And sometimes they're the oldest texts I can get a hold of for a particular culture. Don't you think that, uh, I, I agree with you, that religions do hold truths and many um, of the ancient spiritual texts do hold guidelines on how to, mm-hmm. you know, love thy neighbor, treat thy neighbor as if they were your brother. You know, do not covet. Yeah, you know, all that like... stuff. But don't you think, like, physical action needs to happen too yes. to completely form a person? 100%. That's where it's missing. It's if, it you're, is. if you're just studying these works, but you're not applying them in a way that tests you, tests your, mm-hmm. your morals, tests your physical mm-hmm. will, your discipline, your mind, tests the way, right. the patterns of thinking that you're able to cultivate and maintain under pressure. Yes. One, we have a problem of compartmentalization. And this goes back to this goes back to the Kali Yuga. This goes back to and, and what is written in the, what the Kali Yuga will, will entail and how people will behave to Nietzsche and the last man to Spengler. And the, he, he breaks everything down into spring, summer, autumn, winter, we're in winter. And when he wrote the decline of the West, he's talking about the winter, you mm. know, the winter of our discontent, I guess. Um, when you get to these, these, parts in time, you see that everything becomes this little compartmentalized aspect. Training in the gym is this compartmentalized thing where I'm just doing jujitsu maybe. And then when I go and I go to church, if you're a church going person, that's its own compartmentalized thing. And when I go to school, and so everything is this other, it's everything's a deracinated, atomized, you know, uh, materialized way of doing things. And nothing is 
is integrated into itself mm. to make a synthesis of all aspects of being in the world. Right. Um, you know, That's to, a great to way be to put like Heidegger would say, like to be Dasein. Um, but even even still, you know, as you break these things apart, human beings need physical activity. Period. And it's not even about whether you're good at it or great at it or or you suck. It doesn't matter. Finding places on a broad scale, finding things that that challenge you and, and allow you to grow are an absolute necessity. Agitation or suffering in some way is going to help you uh, break, break down and build up. It's like tearing down the muscle tissue and then it comes back bigger and stronger. It's the same for a person in terms of their being. Also, uh, the body needs to move. We weren't we're not made to sit around all day long and we're not made to sit and do nothing and just eat processed stuff, you know, also, which is really like so bizarre how much nudging is going on to try and get everyone to eat fake processed meat everywhere. It is driving me nuts. I, it's driving me nuts as well. It All is. All that plant-based <laughs> meat shit. There was an article recently where Bill Gates said that wealthy countries should oh, move 100% to plant-based meat. Like what? Go, you, you first, Bill. Go for it. He, I think he's already doing it. Just uh, why if you look at him, it shows. Yeah. This like that stuff's terrible for your body. It's if it you is want, listen to me, horrible. folks. If you want to eat vegan, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You can do it, and you can do it healthy, and you can sustain uh, rigorous levels of physical activity with a vegan diet. Some people, some people can. But the point is, like, you don't do it with fake meat. You do it with pea protein. You do it with hemp protein. You do it with uh, eating fresh vegetables. You don't have these fucking garbage fake meat alternatives. If you well, don't want to eat meat, just don't eat meat. Right. But eating that stuff is not good for you. They're as, crammed with seed oils. Yes, and, and just trash. It's just it's, yeah. it's as processed as dog food. And some of it, when lined up against itself, ingredients-wise, it, it is indistinguishable from dog food. Dog food is probably more nutritious. Dog food in general is probably more nutritious. But Most dog food has a lot uh, of like, aside, animal protein. To me, it. veganism is... If you're a vegan because you have such... Um, empathetic and emotional attachment to the to, to animals in any way and you can't see yourself having an animal die in any sense for you to okay valid you do what you got to do to make this work for you but i accept that and it's totally fine and every other all the stuff about this is healthier it's this it's that bullshit this is a luxury diet born of modernity this is you know it's exactly the kind of thing you would see in the kali yuga it yeah, is yeah. this idea that you can somehow all pretty much every historical tribe peoples nations everything that has helped people grow the fact that it is said that our ability to harness fire and cook animal proteins is what allowed us to get in the caloric and and vitamin and intake that we needed for our brains to grow to become us yeah i think it's a primary factor I, I, you it's, know even if you're eating pea proteins you're gonna have to yeah. do stuff to help break it down whatever it doesn't have the same amino acid profiles i mean it's just it's just not no, it's yeah. not but if you, the point is like if you do study it meticulously and you're very careful you can live a vegan diet and you be could. healthy i know a lot of people that do it but the point is it's like you don't do it through fake meat mm-hmm that shit is not good for you. But There's it's, plenty uh, of vegetables that are great for you. A hundred percent. You can eat yeah. legumes and lentils yeah. and blends of lentils and rice. And there's yeah. ways to do it. If, and, and you know what? Hemp hearts. 
That's true. But yeah, this all the nudging for fake meat is just like, oh, okay. It's, it's like, I, I don't know why people are listening to him in that regard. You should listen to him on how to how to market an operating system yeah. and make billions of dollars. They he did an to amazing him. job with that. They listen to him because he is part of our aristocracy. Yeah. And our aristocracy is nothing but managerial rent-seeking elites that don't know how to make or create anything anymore. Or they have an, a capability in one sector mm -hmm. that they then think gives them the understanding capability across all things. That's a very that's, good way to put it. That's a very good way to put it, and I like that you called them aristocracy because that's essentially the way we look at extremely wealthy business people in this country. We look at them as like, if this guy is able to accumulate billions of dollars, mm -hmm. he must be a special class of person because clearly that's the one thing that every working person aspires to is to become exorbitantly right. wealthy. And that may be true, and that special class is psychopath. Perhaps. <laughs> Maybe, <know>? right? <laughs> right. It's uh, a lot or, of business people. Or he is people. an exceptional class of person in a very specific context. Yes. But that doesn't make them exceptional. Right. Like, do you think Bill Gates could fucking fight at all? No. No. No, Bill Gates, part of what makes a Bill Gates is that all the violence that he ever needs in the world to allow him to have what he needs is already proxied out and he yes. never has to be the one to employ it. Yes, for so sure. So yeah. if, if at any point all aspects of, of governance and personal private security just says, nope, you're on your own. Right. We will prosecute no one for what happens to you. Well, that he's is done. That is a if he's caput lapunum, yeah. which means head of the wolf, which means that's it. You're on your own. You get no. No one will come for you. No one will help you. Anyone can attack you at any moment for any reason. You are under no protection under Rome. Have fun. Bill Gates is gone. Yeah, quickly. Because that is the reality. Of life, period. Yeah, at all they points. will raid him the way they raid a San Francisco Walgreens. You will get snatched out of the air. <laughs> you, you'll get snatched out of the air like some hapless fucking seagull yeah. by a chimpanzee. How wild is that video? Is it's that the greatest video? It is pretty great. And I almost as great as I write some little comment like, oh, this is the deepest, one of the deepest truths of being right here. And then watching the just like mid-wit level responses and then watch them go after each other. I'm like, it, it's, it's funny. That's why to I don't read responses. No, I get I just you. want to enjoy that champ beating per that seagull to death. <laughs> I know what's happening. I personally like to read. I, I read all the comments and everything because I look for the threads. What is the perception of me? What is the perception of what I say? It's not about whether it's true or it's false. I'm just trying to get an idea of what it's people. A, it's, it's not a chimp. It's a monkey. It has a tail, right? It is a monkey. Right? Oh, okay. Is that it's its a monkey. feet? Is that its feet or is that? It's hard to tell. I think it, that's a tail. It's hard. Either to tell. way, it's it's locked in on there, uh, on that pole with a lot of with its balance is solid, which yeah. is, says something about fucking monkeys, I think right? That's a monkey tail. I think that thing, the the low thing, is the tail yeah. that's holding on to the tree. But he is beating the fuck out of that seagull. That is so wild. And he's gonna eat it. Well, that's probably his, that's probably what he wants. I mean, this poor bastard has probably been living in this fucking zoo, yeah, being tortured for. Uh, he's in a prison for no. Fault of his own, right? He, he didn't do anything wrong. It just oh, happened to be born a in a prison, right? Yeah. His thrownness was to grow up in in bars, and then he figured out how to climb up there and snatch one of those motherfuckers right from the sky. Hey, nature finds a way, bro. That does. I I've, I fucking love this video. <laughs> 
First of all, seagulls are cunts. If you don't know, <laughs> seagulls are some of the most evil birds. You ever see seagulls try to eat other birds? Oh, they're nasty. They're nasty, they're, they're man. Mean as shit. They're I grew mean up in as Seattle, fuck. man. Oh, there's seagulls right. everywhere. They're everywhere. Uh, they are brutal little sons They'll of bitches. They'll eat a pigeon, swallow them whole. There's a great video of a seagull eating a rat whole oh, I'm in not New surprised. York City. It is crazy. This rat is gigantic, and this seagull is like choking yeah. it down. Actually, it might be in Italy, now that I think about it. Uh, seagulls are brutal. Yeah, they're brutal animals. So that I'll, I'm team primate. <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm all yeah, with that yeah, monkey. Yeah. I mean, I, that, if, that's if, my if it was a crow, I'd be upset about it. But Right, I like crows. Yeah, me too. Crows, too smart, man. magpies, ravens, I'm all they're about so it. so smart. Yeah. One of my favorite videos online is there's a raven or a crow, whichever one it was, who convinces these two cats to fight. Instigates a fight. Have you seen that? Yes. Yes. He goes to one cat, fucks with him, and then flies over to the other roof and fucks with the other cat, and then goes back and forth until the cats decide they're never going to catch this bird. But they're so round up, they're so angry, they start going to war. And the the raven follows them. He the crow is like laughing while these guys are going to war. Hugin and Moonin, there there are in the Eddas and all the Norse myths for a reason. Yeah, they're you know, smart. They're, they shit, they man. go out and they bring they bring things back to Odin. Yeah, well, you've seen them do tricks, right? Where they mm-hmm. figure out how to use tools to get. To get if you split their tongue, I think it allows them to. They, they can start to speak. You can teach them to speak. Look at this. Research shows that crows and other corvids, a family of birds that includes ravens and magpies, know what they know and can ponder the content of their own minds, according to a 2020 study in Estat. This is considered a cornerstone of self-awareness and shared by just a handful of animal species besides humans. I wonder what the test entailed, that they can ponder the content of their own minds. I know I saw uh, an article talking about that uh, chickens can actually be trained to have like the intelligence of like a toddler, like a really? three-year-old, where they, you can teach them to, to take shapes and put them in the right boxes and things really? like that. Yeah. Bro, I've I've never seen an animal more vicious than a chicken when it, when it's confronted with a mouse. Oh, I had four of them in Hollywood of all things, and oh, I would watch them just annihilate lizards and oh, what have God. you. And then one time, this little Chihuahua somehow I don't know got loose from its you know its its trophy wife or whatever. It's Hollywoodite and it's running around. Oh my God, precious, where'd you go? And it ended up somehow in our backyard, cornered, and and we hear. This noise, I hear this. The, the, the chickens are going crazy. It's like, what the hell is going on out there? This this, this chihuahua is cornered with all four chickens, just like rah, rah, just trying gonna, to eat it. Going to take it apart if they don't. Oh my if they don't God. act right. Yeah, if you're small enough, a chicken will bust a move on you. It's the dinosaurs. It, they really are. They they are such little creeps. But uh, you know, we we think that we can compartmentalize everything we do. Oh, I go and I. I work out because I want a six pack, or I work out because, you know, we always have this external reason instead of an internal reason of I'm a human being and I need to fucking move. Right. I can't just sit here and be unable to open a jar. That's pathetic. Right. You know, a jar in and of itself is technology manifest. And now I'm too weak to even operate the thing that's made to make my life fucking easier. I can't. How do you get more pathetic than that? Well, it's also just to, for the management of the mind, just to make sure that everything runs smoothly. 
I, I 100% believe the body needs activity. Uh, yes. You, you need something. You need something. And I think the mind needs challenges too. Yes, it does. I don't think it's as simple as the, the body needs activity. It's one of the reasons why discipline training like endurance training is so good for you mm -hmm. because it trains the mind. Because the mind, you don't think of like a discipline activity like, like long distance running or right. any kind of like deep, heavy endurance training. It's a mind contest. Yes, it is. Because you're going to get to this you're going to get to this point where it's either your mind decides that you're going to get it done or your mind or you'd make a decision it's not possible right and when you're doing these kind of hard strenuous activities and i explain this to my fighters constantly most of this incredibly hard training it isn't so much about the body it's about you telling yourself that i can go past what i thought my limitations were yes. and it's such it's such a throwaway concept in today's way of being that people just think like, oh, that's just you know part of like, oh, I, I can biohack the body. I can do that. It's just that's the whole concept. Everybody says that. It's like, no, this is fundamental towards your development. Mm. And and like you say, being able to even sitting here and you and me talking about this whole Chris Rock thing. Me disagreeing on one end, you starting from another. And I then don't think us, we really disagreed, not though. Not exactly, when we but, but even still, what did we have right. but a dialogue? And we expressed all these different things. And, you know, it could just be, you know, people work just on that surface to begin with because, you know, that's how our, our, our heuristics work, right? We don't have – until we have the opportunity to sit down and get into the, the deeper – branches of all this where it starts from you know it's like a an hourglass you know all these ideas come to this one point and then they can all break away from, into others and being able to have these conversations to have people around you that you can have that so so to speak conflict with yeah is good yes this is this is part of the process part of why i'm trying to track down eric uh who i know is an incredibly busy person is because i want to talk to him so that he can challenge my ideas and vice versa and that we can get insights that we wouldn't have had otherwise mm. because I want to to try and get the most out of life and I want to get the most out of me and hopefully my friends think I'm helping them in the same way yeah that's one of the things that's come out of this podcast for me that was uh, in a sense accidental because I started it out just to have fun mm -hmm. and just talk with friends and have a good time and then along the way, it became a thing where I got to sit down with very intelligent people and pick their brains and get to see how their minds decipher the world. And through that, I've learned so much about the way my own brain works and, mm -hmm. and why you know, you, you've, you'll, you'll slide into one pattern or another pattern and it might not necessarily even be accurate or, or relative. The, the way that people that are not being disingenuous describe your podcast as an exploration of ideas and conversations is 100% true. And last time I sat in here, which is also kind of funny because uh, I can't wait for everyone to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did Joe Rogan. I'm like, this is like my sixth time, assholes. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, it's, I said it last time, this right now, is so fucking important, I cannot stress it anymore, that there is a place where people can come on here and have conversations and express ideas. I don't give a fuck if you like them or not. You have to you have to interact with that which is the unknown and that which you don't even like. Yes. You know, I 
when it came to things that I felt were fucked up or ideas or ideologies and, and philosophical contents that I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. None of this reads okay in my book at all. My... <laughs> My position isn't to then go just read all the things and study all the things of people that hate it. No, you got to go to the source. Go, go, let it speak Find to out you. Why speak these to you think itself the way they think. Yeah. And then once you've done that, now you can make your own decision. At least you heard their arguments, hopefully, uh, in the best way that they felt they could make them. And being here, and especially seeing after, I mean, it's just so to me. A lot of things are are self evident in terms of the actions that happen. And the, 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 what seems to be a really clear underlying reason why. You catch COVID. You say, hey, I did this. And I'm good. And that was great. I'm glad I'm not hurt. This is what I did. This is for all of you to understand what I went through. So I'm help in a way I saw it as Joe Rogan is giving his experience to try and bring something good into the world. It wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing framed about it in like, and you know, I did it with this one trick that they don't want you to know about. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was just simply a matter of, hey man, here's what I went through. Here's what I did to the detail. Hey man, I'm okay. Take it for what you will. I'm just trying to put things out into the, into the ether to, to bring more things to the world. Maybe it's going to help other people. But the response was, hey, that's not the narrative. Fuck you. You got to be destroyed. And I'm like, that, that I mean, how, how does somebody not see? And then seeing people like, yeah, I see. Exactly. Joe Rogan's so evil. He's such a bad person. It's like, Wait a second. We're literally in a pandemic. A guy says, hey, I'm suffering in this too, but I did this and it seemed to work for me. Hey, do something with it if you want. You know, maybe this could be useful for you or other people, or someone else could go. Why don't we run this through uh, the, uh, some sort of controlled study as best as we can? Let's let's try to use some potential positive uh, opportunities to then apply it to other people. But no, 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 no. That's not the way we've decided this has to be. That's not the route that we have decided through propaganda and, you know, basically nudging and other things, you know, read Walter Lippmann's uh, public opinion, go read Edward Bernays's propaganda and uh, public relations, and then go see how this shit is fully applied through this concept of the cathedral at anything it determines is a heretic. Mm. And it's like, well, is the point for us through our actions to make the world a better place potentially or to, to have things out there for other people to use to maybe create their own benefit or is the whole point of why we're doing this to create this structure for whatever oligarchs remain at the top to then decide how the world should exist for you and for you to then just go okay this is the punch card you've put into ENIAC right now this is what I'm going to do because you put it in you told me how I was supposed to act yeah, well, it was an extreme time where people were so tested, like their their ability to deal with uh, adversity, their ability to deal with anxiety, all those were stressed to attend, mm-hmm. and people freaked out, and they're looking for things to freak out about, and when someone took what they think is like an alternative path, didn't get vaccinated, but got over COVID very quickly with uh, a series of medications, 
they they thought that I was doing something evil. And I'm like, look, I'm just telling you yes. that this is what I did. And they only focused on that one drug, too, yep. which is so crazy. I remember Because that was the number one thing yeah. that was making the rounds that was counter-narrative. Yes. And the cathedral, this concept of, like, essentially, it, the, the idea was originally penned as it's all these emergent, uh, disassociated groups, but they all worship at the same church. So they're all they're all in the same religion, anyways. So they all have the same belief stru structure. Although I tend to believe that there is actually some levels of collusion at the highest levels, where there is some organization. Don't tell me that the mainstream media doesn't talk to politicians or talk to this person or that person or speak with Bill Gates before they go on to think whatever well, the case 100%. may be. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, they are. They're one. They're also one hundred percent influenced by the yes. companies that pay for their advertising. Of course, they are. You know, and, and we've seen all those ads. And if there's one thing at the bottom of all this, when it came to COVID, one, we as a people, especially in the West, Kali Yuga, we're afraid of death, death, violence. These are abstract ideas. Now, these are things that happen to other people, not to us. These are things that don't exist for me. They exist for someone over there. Mm -hmm. And having that unhealthy relationship with death put you in a really unhealthy uh, unhealthy relationship with being because you're denying an absolute you're denying your endpoint whether you like it or not you are refusing to engage with something that is in your future when don't know right. a lot of things go into that yeah. but with covid the denial of death was so strong and was pushing people to act so utterly irrational and erratic it was it was well, I mean, it was a great example of the decline of the West manifest and the fact that people don't have that internal security in like, well, you know, I've done my life. I've lived my life. I'm going to do the best that I can by the things that I think are the way to approach the world. And when I die, I die. I just hope that what I put into it was something that is now within everybody that was a part of my life and everybody that was a part of my life before that put into me, I've put into them, and it will live on. And like the idea of not necessarily a great chain of being, because that that's a, a it's kind of a different concept, but that I carry the fire for Jim Harrison, I carry the fire for Fred Sato, I carry the fire for Santiago Noy. All these people that have ever been in my life, I carry the fire for Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson. And whatever I do, when I sit here on this podcast, Billy and Carl and Santiago and all these folks, my dad. My grandfather, they're here with me. As I speak to you, as I have what I have formulated in, in my way of being and my Dasein is here. It's the same for anyone if you want to actually, if you want to make this a part of who you are, if you want to actually, if you really want to actualize everything that's been put into you and passed through. Like we don't, I'm not just here on a rock spinning in space. I'm an evolved monkey, blah, blah. I'm not... Living in this state of nihilism doesn't bring you anything but misery, and you lose out on so much. You don't just lose out on, let's say, success or, or like especially material things. No, you lose out on the deeper things, the spiritual things. The, you lose out on the true beauty of the world. Yeah. 
You do. You do. You lose out on what's amazing about being a person mm -hmm. is that you can meet people like yourself that have been tested and through that have developed these exceptional characters. And because of your exceptional character, it makes for fascinating friendship. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. It you does. Know, for me, my, be, me being your friend, I could tell you personally that, that. I always use you as an example as a, an educated savage. I know, I know. And I'm always, and, and prior to coming on the podcast, my, my, my girlfriend, will, she'll back it up on like, Oh fuck! I'm actually nervous right now because, you know, we're we're buddies and we've been doing this for for a while now. But now this shit is so fucking huge. I know it's weird that it's like, oh no! Like, is everyone gonna pour over every single little thing? They I will say and, because ah, there's more know. people pouring over it. But it's the same thing. I do it the same way. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's but, just uh, a conversation. It's true, and and you know, she's she's asking me about like, well, what time are you supposed to be there? I'm like, I don't know. You'll tell me. And she's like, this is like the biggest fucking podcast in the world. I go, I know, but but it's my buddy. We're the same. <laughs> it's yeah. my buddy. That's, that's If I become something different because it, it grew bigger, I'll quit. If, I, if it gets to a point where I can't do it anymore, where I have to do it in some sort of weird way, hmm. where I, I, you know, I walk on eggshells yeah. and mind my P's and Q's, oh, fuck that. No, I, I get you. And yeah. yeah. You need to be able to do whatever you're going to do with 100% sincerity. Yeah. And you need to be you. And Especially this. Yeah. This, this requires sincerity. If without it, this show doesn't have any success. Everybody's complaint, 99, we'll just, we'll just say 99% of everyone's complaint on you, any criticism, is essentially a, they're, they're levying a, insincere they're they're saying that they're putting insincerity on you that's really what it is joe rogan is this because of that joe rogan is that because of this and it's always from a concept of insincerity it isn't because of the actual content of your stuff because they've decided they've already packaged and framed up who you are and what you are and what you're talking about and why you're talking about it in in a way that has insincerity and some sort of ulterior motive beyond this is me, this is what I'm into, this is what I believe now, but yet I'm gonna have people on here to talk to me about these things. And yes, you will argue with people about stuff that you don't buy into. You'll also allow yourself to be convinced. And, and that's the thing is that until you, you sit by and allow someone to show you these different ideas and approaches, even to understand like that's total bullshit. Yeah, you don't know it until you've allowed you yourself to engage until with you it. Really allow someone to express themselves openly. And we live in an era where essentially everybody assumes everything is insincere. Where you know people look at approach everything from well, I have ulterior motives for what I want to do. I want material gains. I want this. I want notoriety. I want to be famous or what have you. Not just I want to do something because I think it's a good thing to do and it intrigues me and I like it. But the thing is, when you do something like that, because it's a good thing to do, because it intrigues you and you like it, it resonates with people because they're so starving for that. Because most of what you see, you see a lot of people that are cynical and they think that everything is insincere and you just find the thing that's the most acceptable to you that's also insincere. And that's how we pick yep. politicians. Right? Everyone's a grifter. Yeah. Everyone yeah. is bullshit except for my side. We have Now we have two teams of mm -hmm. morons yeah. and they're supposedly... You know, oh, well, this guy, you know, the reason why, you know, gas is going up is this, that, and the other. It's because of this. Right. No, it's not. Right. It's, you know, the price of price of the barrel of oil dropped at one point and the prices of gas still went up. 
You know, yeah. it's like, oh, Sa- you re- Sagar and Jetty has a really good analysis of what is causing the rise of gas prices. I don't want to fuck it up, but I would d- guide people to go look up uh, Rise, uh, not, excuse me, that's their old show, uh, Breaking Points. It's their mm-hmm. new show with Crystal and Sagar, and, and Sagar breaks down in a very detailed and nuanced way what's well, going on. At the simple, to, to even, to dumb it down to, its, to, its, to it, the simplest version I could think of. You know, instead of telling everyone to buy EVs and, you know, all of a sudden, hey, you got 50 grand laying around, just buy an EV. Yeah, or like, broke. we're going to have to cinch our belts up. Yeah. Hey, how about you just take away the excise taxes for right now? Did you see some of the fucking hot takes on this from Bloomberg? Because some of them <laughs> no were way. so- No way. Bloomberg was stupid, deci- was stupid hot takes? They I were can't believe that. telling people that they should- Avoid chemotherapy for their dog. That was one of them. <laughs> okay. I'm not kidding. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because I made a screenshot of it because it was so fucking crazy that I was like, that can't be what someone's actually saying people should do because, because there's no fucking, there's, because they, they're running out of money. See if you can find that, Jamie, before I find the screenshot because I, you, I think, it's, think it's in here. I'm gonna try to find it. Well, they had, it was a tweet. And in the tweet, they had made a synopsis of what you, you need to be doing to you make everything You need to use archive.today when you pull these things up so you get no paywalls. Oh, I go, get, when I get a paywall, I know what to do. Yeah. I just don't, it doesn't always come up right away. I'm trying to find Don't it, make the mainstream media money. I make <laughs> too many goddamn screenshots, unfortunately, of stupid shit. So do I. Because I find so much of it, it just drives me nuts. Or get meme drops in. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, I need that. I need that. I've got it in here somewhere. It's I know it's close. But uh, yeah, of, of course. I mean, in in an unreality, living in unreality. Of course, that's it. Eat, Eat beans, beans, take, take the, the bus, bus. Skip getting chemo for your sick dog. See if you find the actual tweet because it's so <laughs> stupid. It makes yeah. me furious. Yeah, fuck your 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 animal companion that you've raised. Yeah. and that you love and loves you back. Dude, let me tell you something. Don't buy in bulk. I would I would take out a loan before T- I would try let- lentils instead of meat. More nudging, by the way, to get you to stop eating animal products. Yeah, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Nobody said this would be fun. Yeah, fuck you. Like, what does that mean? Nobody said this would be fun. Oh, like, look at that. Thanks, Dad. Look at this. Inflation stings most if you earn less than three hundred thousand. That's a lot of fucking <laughs> money. Here's that- how to deal. What talk about being delusional and out of touch. Inflation stings if you earn less than a third of a million dollars a year. Yeah, no shit it stings. Yeah, duh. No shit. But here's what you should do. Take the bus, don't buy in bulk, try lentils instead of meat, and nobody said this would be fun. Nobody said this was going to fucking happen. Yeah, nobody said it was going to happen. Nobody said that any of this shit was going to go down. By the way, no one said that we were going to have some uh, uh, plausibly... Lab uh, altered coronavirus yeah. released on the world. No one said that uh, we were going to have uh, uh, a war in in Ukraine in, in yeah. Europe. No one said that. But but yet, yeah, by the way, it's like it's a shift. Like COVID doesn't exist anymore because now we have the Ukraine war and so on and so on and so on. Like there's always a constant new thing. It's like nope, that doesn't exist anymore. Now this is right. this. And now the same this people are now tweeting about it. Of course, my favorite. You know, some of my favorites are. Um, was it Trump was talking to Zelensky, I guess, at one point about there was like phone calls like, oh, see this, and, you know, but but Ukraine and Zelensky said, oh, well, he didn't 
force me to do anything or threaten me or whatever. It's like, but you're just a corrupt imbecile and you don't, doesn't matter what you have to say. And now it's like, no, but you're actually the reincarnation of Rambo and Mother Teresa all at once. So it's like, well, which is it? I mean, is he a human being or is he just uh, 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 some sort of uh, stand in for whatever your, your narrative needs to be? And then with inflation, I saw an article, I don't remember who it was, Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or some other midwit, you know, news source. It's like, oh, Inflation is on the rise, and that's a good thing. Yeah, what? Who? Now, this What's is what I want to know. Living in? Who is that? For like whom? A hot take for for clicks? Is that like a clickbait thing, or is that? Do you think, in the most cynical sense, that would be someone is giving them a narrative, mm. and it's like someone I want is giving you to them a narrative. Yes. A, uh, a good spin on why you don't have any money. Look, we don't have, yeah. I, I mean, maybe, but my personal opinion is it's if if your upper echelon of elites are just managerial types that they see, they get their rent seekers, they get into a position, all they do is they get rent off of it. They can't make, create, or build, or fix anything all they can do is manage they can push the papers along they can they can make the system grow they can put more managerials in they can solidify their position they can consolidate things but they can't make stuff they cannot if there's a problem they can't really fix it because one they're absolutely way too fucking slow at doing anything because there's so many steps in between all aspects to like fix something like i guess flint has water now but it took forever and by the way Nobody even, I mean, most people have probably forgotten completely that there was an entire American city with poisoned water. Right. And no one ever really followed up on, hey, guess what? Uh, we did something about it. Right. Nobody said anything. And then I don't know if they have done anything about it. I, I read an article that said, because I looked up on it, I'm like, what the fuck happened with this? And it's like, oh, yeah, actually, everything's good now, but people in Flint are have such low trust that they won't drink the water and he's still oh, well they should have low trust well Fuck, yeah man. of course but you remember uh, when obama went there and drank the water like a <clears throat> stunt remember that it's one of my favorite like weird moments because he sipped the water in like the is the tiniest little bird sip can i get a glass of water i'm thirsty <laughs> this isn't even a stunt <laughs> michelle is here i'd like a glass of water she gave me this glass yeah, on our wedding I mean, night. Come on, man. Take a go. No, it's you know what? It is just and yet uh, if if it's one side, he's he's your god. If yeah. it's another side, he's your devil. And uh, I'm like on both ends, it's like, guess what? You you if Obama's the devil and you think you, then and you think your guy's some sort of saint, you're fucked. Yeah. You've got it all wrong. Well, what he definitely is is the best representation of an intelligent, articulate statesman who is a president of our lifetime, other than Clinton, and Clinton was kind of a sketchy dude who liked to fuck everybody. Yes. You know, it seems like Clinton... All, all he is... Can I get a glass of water? Let me hear this. Yeah. Uh, hold yeah, it from the beginning? On. Can I hear it from the beginning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Electrolytes. <laughs> no, from the beginning. No, no, no. It's a long, it's a long, it's a long video to get to no. here. Me to go because he back. says, can I get a glass of water? All right, he goes back. This is the, the part that's fun. Can, can I get some water? Imagine living in a city where your water is poisoned and you cheer. And that's how much they love this guy. I mean, when he was a president, at the very least, we knew that we had a super intelligent, 
very like he he was composed. You know what we he knew we had? Shit together. We had a, a, a first rate manager. Yes. Yes, we we felt like he was smarter yeah, than us. Well, of course. If I if I saw him on TV, I'm like, well, that seems like a president to me. I, look, I voted for him. Yeah, I did too. If you look at like Joe Biden, unfortunately, you're looking at him and you're going, I don't know what he's capable of. Uh, I don't think he's capable we, no, right. of figuring out problems. I mean, he's saying crazy shit in the White House. I was go, that, that doesn't sound what Joe means. No, no, right. That's but, not what Joe. But means. we still have. Not just across the U.S., but across the entire West. We have the oligarchs, and they are all oligarchs. Yes. Go read Political Parties by Robert McKells, and he will outline why every group, every group, eventually becomes an oligarchy. It is impossible for it not to, and especially in politics. It's impossible. It will always be an oligarchy. Why, why is that? Because in the realm of politics, okay, you got all this mass of people. These people need to make a decision. So at some point, they're going to go through some process of figuring out who they want their representatives to be because everyone can't speak at once. Someone's got to distill the messages and what have you. And people don't want to work in a gigantic collective of everything. At some point, somebody is going to be either the natural born leader or they're going to make them the leader because it isn't for everyone and it's not even to everyone's capabilities to be the leader or to be the spokesperson to deal with the the conflict from from argumentation and so on and so forth and to be the person to stand up and to get people to believe like if he says to do it I'll do it you know mm -hmm. what I mean right also you then also start to have things like all right we live in this in a in a liberal democratic republic so you're going to need in politics oh i need someone to run my campaign i need someone to do this someone's got to so you start getting the division of labor in and amongst even your political party itself to then handle all these specific tasks and get specialized people to do it well then they also then become part of that oligarchy because it can't just be Joe Schmo and, and, and Betty Nobody. It's got to be somebody that is either A, capable of being the person that's the, the campaign manager and the script, the speech writer, script writer, one of the same. Kind of the same. Well, all this, you know, <laughs> different things. And this is all working towards your, your upper echelon to go out there and to represent on your behalf. And especially in America, which is a representative republic, it's a representative democracy, somebody has, is, is there on your behalf. Although... There is a jillion unelected, <laughs> uh, non-democratic officials like a Fauci or what have you that are out there making all kinds of rules, doing all kinds of things that you have no say in and you get to do nothing about it. Right. But the thing is, as Michaels points out, it, it, it always eventually, either by necessity or just by nature, every group becomes an oligarchy, always. And the thing about it is, okay, well, if it is an oligarchy, one, you should be you should be truthful about it and not try to lie to everyone and say like, oh, no, no, we all have a, a say in this. No, the fuck you don't. You don't. We do. And if we don't like the sound of that, we ain't changing it, period. And instead, in this modern age, what we'll do is we'll get the cathedral to go and tell you how you're supposed to think. And then you'll come around to us or we'll nudge you. Until eventually you come to the point that, you know what? Eating meat is bad. You know yeah. why? Because reasons and, and studies and statistics right. and- Climate. You know, climate. Climate is one. And it's like climate becomes more of a vehicle to insert 
particular political ideologies more than it has anything to do with saving the planet. Yeah, and that's part of the problem with any cause that we have that's a, a giant national cause. They, they, they use them. They manipulate them. You know, it's like whenever uh, a, any sort of tragic event happens, yep. there's a lot of times people think that, well, maybe it was orchestrated because you see how these people are using this event. No, they, that's like their default mechanism. They take advantage of chaos and mm -hmm. of any kind of big event to implement ideas they already had. Like when 9-11 when happened, one of the things about the Patriot Act, there was a bunch of shit they were already trying to pass through, yep. and they couldn't get it before 9-11. Nope. But once 9-11 came along, they go, hey, now we got our shot. Yep. Let's get in this mass surveillance. Let's start fucking ramping up our, our security state. Hey, uh, Saudi Arabia funded a bunch of these guys to get all their training and all this kind of stuff. Or funding came through Saudi Arabia, and then, you know, we're doing all this. This um, we're doing all this stuff with military arms and all this backing and supporting of Saudi Arabia. We go to Saudi Arabia and say, "Hey, can you pump more oil?" And they go, mm, "Nah." That's recently, right? Yep. What is what is? I don't know what's well, what happening there because I'm only know? reading headlines in that because it's just too, it's too <laughs> oh, much. No, no. Well, for one, I mean, not to get all into the Ukraine, but um, it's fog of war. You just can't know it. And now with our massive media state, there's no. You're going to only know what they want you to know, and to be able to to get through. And try to even understand some semblance of truth is going to be incredibly difficult. And at the end of the day, you have innocents dying on both ends for reasons that don't seem to be, you know. Logical. No. I want to and, and recommend a podcast to people because a lot of people recommended it to me and I'm in the middle of it right now and it's excellent. And it's about Ukraine. If you want to get an understanding of like what's happening, why it's happening. It's called the Marty Made Podcast. Hmm. Oh, excuse, excuse me, Martyr Made. Martyr Made. Po Martyr Made Podcast, and it's called Thoughts on Ukraine, updated and remastered. And um, it's very well thought out, very, uh, it's very intense. I'd like to add, really well um, done. listen to Samo Burja, Burja's uh, conversation he had. How do you say his name? Samo, S-A-M-O-B-U-R-J-A. Uh, he has a company that is centered around analyzing all world events and politics and everything and trying mm. to Bismarck analytics. And there, I'd also say Michael Malice and, and Curtis Yarvin on yeah, Your Michael Welcome. Ma Michael Malice is great. He's a good dude. I, yeah. I'd like to meet him at some point. I want to argue with him about- uh, He's out here. Oh, well, I'll, I'll try and- you know, track him down. Lex oh, I'll connect you uh, said that suggested that you know that him, I, and Lex all sit together. I was like, well, I'd love that. So I'd like to talk to him about anarcho-capitalism and well, and anarchy in general and why it doesn't work. But I also respect him in a lot of ways for putting his opinions out there. And look, if he's friends with Lex and he's friends with you and he's friends with my other buddy Ethan, he's got to. No, you'll boom, love him. Boom. He's, he's a great guy. And and Yarvin as smeared and misunderstood as he is, I think has a lot of interesting insight. And I also think that, you know, just for your own sake, not just Ukraine or any, but for any understanding and getting a better idea on all about how, especially the West works on a political level, read James Burnham's The Machiavellians. It is the easiest way to get familiarized with the cons with the thinkings of the what's called the Italian elite theorists. Gaetano Mosca, Vilfredo Pareto, and uh, Robert McKells. And they look at politics 
from the perspective of power, but from also the perspective of how these things work, especially in a democratic sense, and how even though the concept of what we would call liberalism, which as an aside note, I hate it when people call leftism liberalism or leftist liberals. I'm like, no, everybody in America essentially is a liberal because we are a liberal society. We are built on classic English liberalism. That is the the, the bedrock of who we are um, as, a, as a nation. But uh, liberalism likes to say that, no, 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 we're all in this. We all have a say. We all... And they say, no, you fucking don't, actually. Y you think you do, but that's not true. And in fact, at some point, this all goes away and the oligarchs and the managerial class decide everything for you. And you're, you, you think that what you're doing is going to influence these things, but it doesn't. You think that when, oh, there's this big, you know, uprising of uh, populist movement of against this or that. It's like, yeah, it was all astroturfed. I'm sure somebody in the elite class somewhere funded it. The The government either put rules in place to to increase its probability of happening, you know, um, which is an argument of uh, uh, law. Uh, culture is decided by law and not the other way. Um, and that's an even deeper concept to get into. But just simply that at the end of the day, human beings organize themselves in such a way that there's always a representative at some point. And be it a king, be it a president, be it an elite managerial class, that's how it's going to happen. And once a managerial class sets itself up, the only thing it wants to do especially is manage because it's not there to create. It's not there to, to fix. or No, it's there to continue management and to ensure, most of all, that they stay there that they don't lose their positions. And so a lot of what I saw COVID as is like, this is managerialism manifest. It is, it's not about whether this is healthy or that's healthy or we could make this change or, okay, what we didn't know, an overreaction makes sense. It's the unknown. And even despite our massive fear of death in, the, in, in modernity, in the Kali Yuga, we still need to approach things, the unknown, as like, well, I don't, it's the unknown. The fuck if I know what's really going to happen? Yeah, I'm probably going to overreact until I know more, until I've had a little bit more time. Then I can readjust. But the readjustment really never happened very, uh, definitely didn't happen with any sort of real speed because the managerial class is sitting back like, we cannot, we cannot make a mistake on this in any way where it can be used against us, regardless if it's small or large, right or wrong. If it was right, I guess it wouldn't even be a mistake. But any way that it could be used as ammo against us to lose our position to our enemies. Because all politics is breaking down, breaks down into a friend-enemy distinction. And you know that who is uh, along with my narrative is my friend and that who is against it is my enemy because if you're against it that means you could then use it to somehow say i don't deserve to be here and if i lose my spot in the managerial i've lost and all this all this way of rent seeking is now taken from me and that's all i do anyways because i'm not capable of probably starting a successful car company where i redesign suspension or i do no no, all I know how to do, I go to school, I get raised up through this managerial oligarchic class, I go to the right schools, I say all the right things, I join the right clubs, I get primed to go into places, then I get to become a managerial myself. And when I'm in politics, 
I'm, a, I'm part of that managerial oligarchic class. And then when I leave politics, I'm still in it because now I'm working at Pfizer when I used to be a part of the whatever, like the FDA. Yeah. Or yeah. this. And, and I'm going back and forth between the right, two. Right. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff for Monsanto. Then I'm president. Then I go back to it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I get to go and do you know, meeting uh, dinners while I'm in office at $30,000, $50,000 a plate and rake in all this cash. And then go back to me and telling you about how you need to cinch your belts about this or that, yeah. or you know any number of reasons that you can, any other scenarios you can come up with, and uh, that managerial class of person isn't capable of then coming down here and running a simple podcast. No, their podcast has to be backed by uh, parts of the cathedral that then back the managerial class that then <laughs> uh, to allow them to continue to to push the same narratives that their class wants you to push and and put things out there the way that they think is beneficial to them so that they can then go back to being a manager in some other way. And, you know, it's like the homeless problem in L.A. Every time I see someone rallying for they're going to go for some office, and like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build all this low-income housing. I'm gonna, how are you going to put a paranoid schizophrenic on crack in a low-income housing? Yeah. How are you going to do that? You, you, do you basically that? don't really give a shit about all these people in the street suffering. You think that it's okay for a person to live this way, uh, you know, deranged in their own head, self-medicating and living in filth as long as you create some boondoggle where you're, you've got a bunch of property development people that are making money off of it mm-hmm. and you're making money off of it and your little shadow corp or your whatever is making – it's just like how could you – know, you have to be a Machiavellian to do that. And sit back and then walk out on those streets if you're Maxine Waters. And I was in her district not long ago. And it's just like, wow. She don't come around. Got nothing to do with any of this. You yeah, know? That that area is a fucking holy mess. All of LA is turning into a holy mess, Joe. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a buddy that comes from freaking Staten Island. And he goes, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. I go, I, this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is how we run things here. We don't fix there. problems. It's we just create worse. them. Yeah, it just it increases. You know, I never had this perspective on homelessness. I always thought that the problem was just really big, and if they had more money, <clears throat> they'd be able to solve it. Sorry, I've got something yeah. in my throat. I think you just need more whiskey. Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> but then my friend Colion Noir pointed out that you know he's a lawyer, hmm. and he went to San oh, Francisco, and he was talking to these people up there about the homeless problem, and they basically laid out, they go, no, no, no. This is a giant money-making scam. The reason why it's never going to go away is that there's a, a large payroll of people that are making exorbitant amounts of money mm-hmm. to deal with the homeless. Now, those people would have no job nope. if the homeless problem was somehow or another solved. And I'm like, how much money are they making? So he pulls up this fucking list of people in, in um, L.A. And there's like people on the list that make a quarter million dollars a year and they're not doing a good job. Like obviously yeah. the homeless situation no. is bigger and bigger every year. Seattle too. The budget keeps getting bigger and yep. bigger and then they, these people make more and more money and yep. it never gets solved. No, of course not. Because solving it, one, they're not <laughs> capable of solving it. Yeah. They're right. rent-seeking managerials. They can't solve shit. Russell, how do you solve like what you said? How do you take uh, a schizophrenic crack addict? I think the only way that I can think of is one you would have to you'd have to basically essentially outlaw homelessness and say look in a especially in a metropolitan dense populated area you cannot have homelessness like this because one don't let you can't have people out here suffering like this that's fucked up it's not okay number two 
uh, those people are a potential criminal problem too. Because and there's if, a health hazard. Number three, it's a health hazard because you have all these populations intermingled with each other, but they're not going and getting uh, healthcare and other things. I mean, they, they can't take care of themselves. So diseases are going to spread amongst these groups at, at different rates, not to mention there's a potential for superbugs to create and or medieval diseases to come back. There was a typhus outbreak yeah. in LA. And and that's it's because wild. now you got all these rats around the the waste and the and the the trash and all this. Plus and then you make the environment ugly, disgusting, unlivable and look, where what you live around absolutely affects the way you you feel, but it also affects the way you interact with the environment around you. If you think you live in fucking barter town, you're going to act like it's barter town. Right. Period. Right. You're going to tag every fucking thing up with every mm -hmm. sloppy, shitty fucking tag. You're going to you're gonna throw your trash out. You're not going to care. You, you just, you know, oh, that's just another homeless guy instead of being like, God damn, you know. Right. Another why fellow this, human being. Why is this person suffering on the street? Well, you know why they're suffering on the street? Could be a number of things, but it ain't the, the, the regular uh, narrative that, oh, they just fell on hard times. Right. Fell on hard times, and then all of a sudden, believe people were trying to get them, and or they're bipolar to such a degree that they're harming themselves and others. No, the only thing I can think of is you'd have to you'd have to make it essentially illegal. You would have to create a big ass camp, and you would have to round these folks up, clean them up, because a person that can't bathe themselves is a massive fucking thing. Human beings want to be able to clean themselves, feel like they've refreshed who they are. You got to give them psychiatric treatment. You got to help them get off the drugs. You got to help them give them drugs if they need them for these things that are ailing their their mental state that are keeping them in this broken uh, realm of suffering that doesn't allow them to actualize who they are. Then you have to give them a work opportunity because human beings need to do something. So in and amongst that, maybe it's just, I, to me, I think, oh, it's beautification, cleaning up all the graffiti, cleaning up the trash, giving someone something to do, pay them some sort of a I don't know, small wage because you're covering all their, now you're covering their, their, their living quarters and all this stuff. And you're giving them medication, you're giving them help, getting them off of drugs. You, the state has credit unions and all these things. You open an account in their name. Now they're getting a bit of money for everything they go out and do. Now, if they want to at some time, they can go, okay, you're clean, you're good to go, you know what medications you need, you're in the system, go take the money, go do what you want to do with it. Or maybe integrate into the program and now you can help other people. Maybe now you can start going to school, learn how, learn, go into psychology and psychiatry. Maybe then at some point you could be the person that's diagnosing this person, trying to help them out and get them off the street. And you create this process that tries to get people from this position of being deranged and in, in the dirt to able to, to have some, some kind of way of actualizing their life and making their own rational decisions. Well, they've done something about it here <clears throat> in uh, Austin, and I had a long conversation with the mayor about it here, and one, one of his points is that Austin only had about 2,000 homeless people, mm. and he's like 2,000, maybe 3,000 homeless people, and he's like, we can fix that. That, mm -hmm. that can be worked. He goes, when it gets to the state where like Los Angeles is, when you're dealing with several hundred thousand people potentially, I'm not no, I don't know what the real number is. Right. But it's it. He goes, it's too much. It's insurmountable. But at some point, you got to sit back and go, we can find every reason to spend inordinate amounts. I mean, I yeah. drove by, and uh, Officer Coughlin, 
who I was doing a ride along with, he shows me this this new container homes that they're building. He goes, you know how much that one up on the top is running going for? How much the cost is on it? Six hundred grand. I go what for a container home? Yeah, six. Where is it? Down towards in and around Watts, close to it. And so, is it like a complex container home? Because I know that yeah, they've it's done like they're some all cool stacked shit on each other online. and all this kind yeah. of stuff. But it's like you really think you're going to get a paranoid schizophrenic to go live in this, or even just a drug addict? Because right. now it's like, well, it's they, they ran enough. this experiment in Seattle and they put these little these little shelters up and almost didn't use them because one, if, if you're a paranoid schizophrenic or something, some neurodivergent on that level. Uh, I'm sure you're you're just like that doesn't seem like a wise idea for someone to know exactly where I'm at at all times. Right. If you're even just considering the fact of that what you're doing with drugs and maybe prostitution or whatever is illegal, well now the cops know where you are in your mind. You're like, well, I don't want to be there. Right. So it didn't work. It didn't do anything. Not only that, when you're living in Los Angeles, you can exist in a tent. It doesn't really get cold enough to kill you. That's true. It's not that big a deal. Or you roll up a, a, an RV. Yeah, and you just sit there yes. and you you chill out there, and yeah. and it's it's a fucked up problem. It is a fucked up. Problem. I wanted because we're running out of time, but I wanted to bring up this one thing that you brought up earlier because I think there's you, you made a really good point, but I think there's more to it. When you're talking about people that want to avoid death, and that this is uh, like a, a main component of our life is like no one wants to die, you want to mm -hmm. avoid death, you don't even think about it when. Do you think that because of the fact that we don't experience death the way maybe some primitive cultures did, that we have disconnected with it, we don't think of it as this inevitable, inevitable, unavoidable thing, instead we think of it almost like something that's not going to happen to me, and that like if you think about like the Spartans, when the Spartans would meet someone who was 30 years old, they would treat them with extreme distrust. They're like, how are you alive? Mm. Like, how have you made it to 30? They thought that person maybe was like a traitor or an mm. enemy or a coward or someone who avoided conflict. Like, how did you ever get to be this old and, and not get killed in battle? We don't see a lot of death here. And I think because of that, in, in most places, because of that, we don't have the same sort of resolve about the inevitability of death that I think some cultures do have. Well, modernity um, is a, a major cause to this uh but let's just say specifically in the west like i said earlier death is an abstract concept it's something that happens to other people right in some faraway place that doesn't exist around me be it war famine or even just natural causes we know people die but they're not but we're never ready for it we right. never expect it and then when it happens it's like oh no don't touch it don't touch it or it'll get on you but the thing is so a friend of mine, one of my best friends, his dad is, is uh, well, he's not in his best place mentally and physically. And my buddy, um, he, he looks at it like, you know what? I'm going to do my best for my father as much as I can, and I'm going to help him in every way that is possible. Uh, but he is going to die, and he doesn't know when. He doesn't know... <clears throat> Uh, especially because it, it could take all kinds of turns at places that he doesn't know and he can't necessarily expect. But at the end of the day, you know, we just sat down there. We looked each other in the eye and go, I just say, look, whatever, whenever, however, just call me and I'll be there. And we'll take him and we'll do what needs to be done. We'll, we'll, if we're going to bury him on his own land, if we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Are done. you allowed to do that? I don't know. <clears throat> but all I know is, it... is this. When the people 
that are of my tribe, of, of my family, of my things in life are there. When death greets them, I'll be there with them. And when, they're, when their body is without life, I will not treat them as if it is something that I don't want to get on me. I will hold that hand, cold as it may be, and I will know that this too is for me. And in this moment, I will not let this person be, I will not let this person essentially be alone. And that's that. I'm not afraid of death, not my death, not other people's death, not death in general, because it's not like I'm so tough or cool or unafraid of anything. It is just that I've accepted this. I live my life in a way where death is beside me at all times. Um, I remember having to have an MRI for something and I'm like, oh shit, you know, some, some heavy shit was going on. And I told this, I told someone, I go, you know, the only thing I thought of at that moment was, you know what? The only thing that matters to me is I refuse to die a coward's death. That's it. That is it. I don't care anything else. I will not die a coward's death. I will meet death head on. I will face it. I will hold its hand. And when I have to walk that way, if, if I get to go to Valhalla, if that's a thing that exists, that's where I'm going. And I'm not doing it like a coward. I'm going to accept it. And there we go. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to roll over. That doesn't mean anything else other than death is here with me at all times and everyone else, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And the difference is I'm here to live life. I am here to face death squarely and accept it and then get everything I can out of being here. That doesn't mean go crazy hedonistically. I got to get it all in before I... No, no, no. That just means I'm going to let the beauty of the world enshrine me and enshroud me because it's all I got. And if I get to get reincarnated, cool. If I go to some sort of Shangri-La, fine. I don't know what any of that could be. And I don't care if it even, if it doesn't exist, I don't care. I don't care if there's a heaven. I don't care if there's a hell. What I care about is living to my principles, being a person that is of honor and respect to those he interacts with and those that he loves and that are part of his life. And beyond that, I just have to accept where I fail, own it, and move forward. That's it. And what you're saying sounds noble and honorable, and it's a, it's a great thing, but it also sounds incredibly rare. And I think that's one of the unique things about this time, is that people that are accepting reality, accepting the, the inevitability of their own demise, and trying to live life by principles and by ethics and, 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 and a strict code of honor, that's it's rare today. It's, it's rare because because Gainon, Nietzsche, Spengler have all seen and sorted out how we have, through the comforts and the malaise of modernity, found ways to divorce ourselves from all these things. Yeah. To not have to have it. Like we live in a culture without honor at any point anymore. And or when we have honor, it's this exacerbated perversion of it where we come storming out of our fucking seat at the Oscars. We slap a tiny comedian who we know the motherfucker has known for I don't know how long. And then we rant and we scream in our seat after the fact. Yeah. Instead of meeting the man face to face, looking him in his eye, having a conversation with him and allowing him even the opportunity to say, hey man, I really didn't mean anything by it. 
I thought it was a pretty simple, harmless joke, especially because, you know, it's still even in the vein of movies and acting. Yeah. And you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt her feelings. And, and, and you know, I didn't know this was such a serious thing for you. And that that's that. And you know what? Allowing somebody to have that kind of humility or that everybody loves to fucking throw around the word empathy all the time. Nobody knows what it actually means. That's empathy. Empathy is not letting all of the, the digital world infiltrate your person and then you going and throwing out all this uh, emotional attachment and taking it onto yourself. So now you can be spun out of control and running around now having to see therapists 24-7 because you've, you've now done something that the human body is not meant to do, which is try to interact with this simulacra uh, as if it is actual reality for you. Right. Without all of the context of being a person, without social cues, without the, the, the emotional connection you have when you're having a conversation with a person. Look, that person on the other side of that Instagram account, unless you actually know them, is not an actual person. That is not a person. That is a simulacra of that person. Yeah, it's a, a vague representation of their real thoughts. And they might be fucking with you. They might be trolling. It they is, might be bored at work. It is the work. persona, the Jungian persona that they want to put out to the world. It's that is not who they are. Yeah. That is a giant problem with social media today. It's like that becomes a goal. It becomes a goal to be the baller on social media mm -hmm. and to have this life that's, you know, at least... Uh, it seems unattainable. Well, I mean, you, you go, you can find inspirational quote yeah. right below some chick that's just showing you her all of her goods. Yeah. Or inspirational quote besides some guy trying to ape the version of masculinity that they think is is like the prime example of it. Yeah. Something and, that's really going to make right. you so wild. Right. So you just have fake living. on top of fake on top of more yeah. fake. And why would it not be fake when the ability to sincerely and accurately know and actuate those things is lost. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, it, it's such a strange thing to have as a primary influence. If you think of our culture, like that's one of the primary influences is the image projected by social media. Mm -hmm. It's a giant part. I mean, we even call them influencers, exactly. which is kind of crazy. And why, you know, when it came to doing whiskey, per se, when they approached me, I said, uh, that sounds great. I got to drink it and I got to meet you guys. Otherwise, right. I got nothing to, we got yeah. nothing to talk about. <laughs> and so I went up there. I met with them. We realized, not only did I realize they made, they were already making a great product, but then with bringing me on board. And even then, at the time, uh, David, the head distiller, was like, you know, I wasn't really quite sure about all this. And I thought, like, you were just going to be some fucking guy. But then here you are milling the grains and doing this and, and watched me with uh, this guy from Bourbon Review do a, a double a blind taste test back to back. And I picked the same barrels and I, you know, the same notes and I could, I could find the whiskey that I wanted to be the one that we released. Mm. He's like, okay. So how do they do that? So they, they gave you a bunch of bullshit whiskeys and yours and you had to taste which one was yours? No, in this case, what it was, we had three barrels to choose from. And all right, which one's going to be the single barrel? So I tasted all three, took my notes, and then I said, you know, I, uh, barrel seven. This is the one we're going to go with for batch one. And then uh, Will from Bourbon Review at the time, he goes, all right, let's do this again. Now I'm going to mix them up. I ain't going to tell you which ones they are. Taste them and see, and, and then pick them. And I picked 
Seven again is my choice, and I have eight and then nine. So I picked them all in the same order that I ranked them before the same time. And it was like, wow. okay, well then, yeah, I guess seven's the fucking one. And How do you do that? Do you have to clean your palate in between? You do, and there's a what couple you- tricks. Uh, one is soda water is pretty good at cleaning your palate. Two, I mean, being very aware of what you eat before you go and do it and not eating something that's like heavily spiced or something oh, that's that's really so if you're trying your to do tongue. a tasting you don't want to do something where all these flavors and everything are over like don't smoke a cigar and then try and go and right. do a cigar tasting um a whiskey taste the other yeah yeah are <laughs> uh, the other thing i i found was you could i saw this on a youtube video you could smell the inside of your elbow and that can kind of help reset what? it helps reset your olfactory the inside senses. of your elbow yeah because it's you. You're smelling you all the time. Okay. Uh, I've seen people use uh, things with coffee in them, coffee beans to smell, and oh. you know, something to like reset your nose. Uh, but there's other little tricks for, for tasting. Like you put a small amount in the glass, shake it, get it on your hands, rub it, smell, then, sh- then shake it, smell, taste a little bit. Because as soon as that alcohol hits your tongue, if it's the first drink, it's going to... It's that alcohol hitting your tongue is like, whoa, okay. That's interesting. Let it settle and take another little sip. Now move it all around your mouth. They call it chewing and then swallow and then let that all coat your mouth and then try to get an idea and start picking things out. And by the way, there's no right way to – if, if you think it tastes like uh, – so last night uh, something we had, I was like, you know, the end finish on this is a bit like – the smell of MDF or plywood in a Home Depot. I'm like, what? I go, try. Yeah, I kind of get that. Okay. Oh, it's toasted coconut. Move to this, move to that. And if that's the note that you come up with, that's the note you can come up with, right? It's yours. However, your memory of taste and smell is unique to you. But yet, we've all eaten and tasted most of the same shit because we all live in the same yeah. country with the same cuisines. Did you take a class on this? No. Or read a book on it? I just became a drunk. <laughs> and talk to other drunks yeah. and they tell you how to do it right. Yeah. So um, doing this whiskey, it was really important. Like everything I do that if it's got my name on it, I really got to stand behind it. Right. Yeah, it's got Warmaster right on the fucking bottle. Right. That's my nickname. This is me. So, yeah. And then when it came to, all right, we need to amp, we need to pick our production up during COVID. So it's like, here I am. I got the time. I'm here in the distillery. So like the video you showed on one of your, one of your deals about, uh, talking about the whiskey. No, that's, I mean, yeah, that's highlight stuff for that reel, but that's real shit. I cleaned the floors, ran distillation runs, smoked grains, uh, roasted shit, did mash bills, sat and uh, um, worked uh, underneath as an apprentice, a head distiller, uh, who also was a PhD biochemist. So we're talking about the aspects of, of, um, physics and chemistry, as well as just stuff that comes with whiskey making, you know, that, 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 that hand, hand done mm. process. And for me, this just lined up perfectly. And not only did our normal Warbringer blend win a gold medal this year at, at World Spirits Competition in its pot still category, our, we have a vodka that we put out where 
vodkas are basically all the same. I don't give a fuck what anybody says to you. If I make you a cocktail with Absolute or Russian Standard or Belvedere or whatever, you probably you ain't gonna taste any difference. I, I watched this video where they took cheap vodka. I saw that one too. And yeah. They ran through a bunch of Brita filters and they said it's indistinguishable from expensive vodka. By nature, vodka is supposed to be tasteless, odorless, neutral, uh, distilled at like I think over 180, and then cut down to you know 80 proof or whatever. With us. We worked with uh, a mixologist, award-winning mixologist, Josh Goldman, to the idea was to create a vodka that would be the best well vodka to make the best cocktails. And the difference is our PhD biochemist and the mineral formulation in the water. So our mineral formulation in the water creates a different mouthfeel, different, a little bit of different interaction, brings out different aspects of what's in the vodka from the three different grains that are in it. And that vodka that we put it up to the World Spirits Competition uh, this year, and it won best varietal in the nation, best varietal in the world. Whoa. Silver grain. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's called Warmaster as well? S- Silver grain vodka. Silver grain. Silver grain. Interesting. Like, you know, getting silver yeah, like, teeth back yeah. in the old day. We have a very old-timey Western aesthetic because we're in the Southwest. Right. And uh, yeah, our, and then we've got our rum coming out, which I made along with our head distiller at the time. Uh, he got a bunch of inverted sugar, and he's like, he made this insanely awesome rum. It's it's, it's more like a scotch kind of in a way, and, and it sounds hard, strange to say it, but huh. if you drank it, you'd understood it. You'd understand it. And it's it was made from this incredibly expensive Muscovado sugar. Well, he wanted to do something. It's like, well, fuck, we just can't keep getting Muscovado sugar all the time, and it's so expensive. I'd like to do something. Well, what is Muscovado sugar? It's this type of sugar from the specific from the Mauritius Islands, oh. and it's got its own unique terroir to it and everything. So, by being in the location that it is. It has its own properties, and the shit's incredibly delicious on its own. I've never wanted to try rum and vodka more than right now. But uh, I'll bring you. I'll get you some rum. I can get you some rum and some vodka. I don't know how many times I've ever had rum in my whole life. (laughs) But uh, he, so he's like, let's. I want to make one that's delicious as fuck, but on a lower price point and easier for us to get a hold of. So he got all this inverted sugar, and he goes, "All right, we're going to cut it half and half." with molasses. And molasses is a pretty typical uh, admixture to make rum from. So we mixed the two together. We did a half and half in, in, our, in our mash. Well, they don't call it a mash bill of rum. They call it a, fuck, I forget what they call it with rum. It's a different term, but it's the same thing. You're basically mixing all the stuff together. You're adding from yeast to it and ferment, you're adding aspects for fermentation. You run your fermentation cycles. And we did it like our whiskey. We run a first fermentation. Then we run a secondary fermentation and, and oak tanks. Then we move, we pump it over to the to the still. We do our stripping run, which gives you a low wine, and then after that, you run it again. Then you get the the final high proof product. So um, that's called Parlor K. Should be coming out sometime soon. And uh, you know, a whole other new experience. And I sat there and worked side by side making rum. Well, dude, when those <laughs> come out, let me know. I'll, I'll let everybody know. I'll post it up on social media. But for now. This stuff is like legitimately some of my favorite whiskey. I love uh, the fact that you love this. I love it. It's mesquite smoked, mm-hmm. and uh, it's probably hard to get, right? It is pretty hard to get. runs out yeah. quickly. Yeah, when we do, uh, I would say if anybody's interested in this stuff, that one of the easiest things to do is sign up for the email list. I know that sounds so fucking corny in war, this day. Is it warbringer.com? Warbringerbourbon.com. Okay. And sign up for that email list because when we put the email blast for the two barrels that we had that were coming out, they were immediately gone. 
I'm all sure. flew off the fucking shelves. I'm sure. It's great stuff. And listen, man, I love the fact that you do this. And you do this like you do everything else. You, you I don't do know any way, way to do it. I, I don't know. know any other way to do it, it's man. It's one of the reasons why I love you. <laughs> Likewise. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for being here. Look, uh, man, Joe, you're know. a fucking treasure. And I can't stress enough. And I've told you, even in just little text, man, like if someone's like, oh, you know, Joe Rogan this. I'm like, tell me. Tell me more. What about Joe Rogan? Go ahead. Uh, Nothing. Like, you ain't going to fucking dog this dude when he ain't even here to defend himself. But go ahead. Well, thanks for that. And uh, and, you, and you know what you do is is it's an important People thing. People are going to dog everything. It's part of life. It doesn't, I agree. It doesn't bother me. I just don't read the comments. Keep moving. But uh, what's your social media? At uh, Josh L. Barnett on Twitter and Facebook. And then there's a Josh Barnett official. Or, no, I'm sorry. At Josh L. Barnett on Twitter and Instagram. Josh Barnett official on Facebook if you're like 65 and you still use that, I guess. <laughs> uh, or you're like in Slovenia. Um, and uh, yeah, you can go to joshbarnett.com. That's got like, it's a nice placeholder for all the shit I'm doing. I didn't even plug this. I have Josh Barnett's Bloodsport. Eight in Dallas, my pro wrestling show, the hardest hitting pro wrestling show, the hardest hitting show in what all of pro wrestling. It is fight oriented pro wrestling where these guys are going out there and going head to head and toe to toe, actually hitting each other, putting it on the line in a way that you're not going to find in any other pro wrestling show out there. Where is it? It's going to be in Dallas at the Fair Park Grounds. And uh, it's part of the GCW Collective Package, which is like this huge amount of different shows. Yeah, this is Josh Barnett's blood sport. It oh, is, so you don't have a ring? Uh, no, we have, and you only win by sub, uh, submission, knockout, or TKO. And so we go at it with each other. Submission holds. We trade back and forth. Strikes. And when is this? Uh, this is going to be March thirty first at oh, so uh, three p.m. See, look, I'm I'm wrestling Minoru Suzuki, former King of Pancrase. Mm. You know, uh, and myself. You know, this is the IQ wrestler who is one of the absolute best highlight video makers in the entire fucking business. It's and intimate, too. It is. And it, it gets down and dirty. There is blood. There is violence. Um, it, it is <laughs> It is no joke. You know, I there's love Chris Dickinson on my guys. Yeah. Um, All right. That's it. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you very much. Likewise. Bye, everybody. Bye.